Hello and welcome to the Back Page of Video Games Podcast. I'm Samuel Roberts and I'm joined as ever by Matthew Castle. Hello. Matthew, how was your excursion to see old ass Indiana Jones? It made me cry like a big fucking baby. That's embarrassing. I mean, no, it's, it's actually quite sweet, but um, what was the what was the deal? It's the end of the film, which I won't spoil, and in classic Castle fashion, a musical cue from an older film that just made me feel very sort of nostalgic and sort of it was hilarious because it follows like one of the biggest piles of bullshit not the whole film but there's a <laughs> the end of that film is fucking ridiculous and then somehow managed to pull me back in him sticking his hand under the door to grab the hat kind of moment except for sort of emotional catharsis it was good yep the power of a john williams music cue so yep. uh yeah pleased to hear that powered you through i'm um, no blockbuster in recent history has made me think about my own mortality more than that film so that was good so this episode our guest this week is PC Gamer Senior Editor Wes Fenlon, a former colleague of mine and only our second US guest on the podcast. Wes, how's it going? Hello. Uh, going well, Sam. I'm now thinking about my own mortality since we worked <laughs> together starting nine years ago, nine and a half years ago at this point. Yeah, we met at GDC 2014 for a sort of kind of creative conference for the pc gamer brand and that was the first time i met you and so yeah you you have not aged at all in that time i have <laughs> aged horribly so that's the difference between you and i basically tell that to the white hairs on my on my chin sam i don't, I don't know if they agree with you <laughs> my white hairs are everywhere my friend that's the <laughs> probably the most cursing i've said on this podcast so where sam how are things going in on, on your side how's pc gamer these days uh you know pc gamers is really good i think probably every website has has kind of dealt with the last couple years of a strange media landscape you know there was a real boom during covid while everybody was just sitting at home with nothing to do except go on the internet and then there was kind of a lull after that we had elden ring come out which you know more people read about on our website than probably any video game of the last decade uh well, and then well. it kind of felt like there was nothing after that for like a year like it just sucked all the <laughs> the energy out of the room you know um so there's been some interesting times of like trying to figure out what people want to know about so there's been some hustling you know but that's actually been kind of exciting to sometimes do a little bit less long-term thinking and a little bit more just like going out there and trying to find cool stuff to talk about that week battle bit remastered for example which a friend of mine told me is too gen z for me to enjoy and i was like <laughs> okay fine i'll stay well well away i appreciate that yeah it's like a um, it's like a battlefield game made by two people or, or something like a tiny dev team but it still has the huge you know 100 player sandbox or whatever yeah like that's the kind of stuff that just pops up on pc every once in a while and you're just like oh shit where did this come from okay like this is the next big thing now yeah absolutely so yeah it's, it's great to have you Wes. and in this episode we're going to talk to you about your career and then switch focus in section two to talk about nintendo in the noughties which is one of your specialist subject and crosses over with uh with our expertise as well uh, particularly matthew so um yeah i know you've got a lot to say on the subject so excited to get into it yeah. so to kick off with so what's your early history with games and what did you grow up playing oh uh, you know i i feel like my my dad owes like I owe him a, a big debt to helping uh, get me into games when I was a kid I would sit on his lap when I was really young and play really more watch him play um, some early PC games he was always kind of a tech nerd um, so we had like a family PC probably a bit before it was common um, and played some truly horrific games uh on on those pcs back in the day uh one called montezuma's revenge which was just like 
the worst pitfall or Mario Bros like platformer <laughs> kind of knockoff you can imagine just a, a terrible game uh, or at least it was terrible on our PC maybe it was good on on a Amiga or something some cool helicopter game we would play with a joystick um, but re- really like I started getting into shareware games by myself a few years later in like the mid 90s and like I somehow completely missed Doom. I don't think I was really even aware of Doom, but I loved Wolfenstein 3D and I played a ton of the the shareware version of that which was the first handful of levels of that game. Uh didn't know until much later that there were actually like 50 or 100 more levels of Wolfenstein 3D. I just thought I had played the whole game because I didn't understand <laughs> shareware. Is Montezuma's Revenge uh, some kind of euphemism, slightly racist euphemism perhaps, for like some kind of illness you get in Mexico from drinking the water or eating the food or something? Is that what that phrase means in <laughs> that real life? Is, that is 100% what that phrase means. I don't know if it's uh, <laughs> if it's a dysentery situation exactly, but yeah, it's some, it's some sort of like you have been bacterially poisoned by water you should not have been drinking uh, and you're probably going to die. But they turned it into a video game about... <laughs> exploring like ancient Aztec caverns or something. I don't really remember. I remember there were keys and there were little skulls that would kind of wobble across the screen and roll into you. Not like one of the great platformers, I would say. I don't think you'd name a game after that these days, but um, you know, it's certainly an interesting time capsule. What about from there, Wes? Were you always on the kind of like PC gaming track or did Nintendo figure into you growing up as well? You know, it, it was mostly PC for me, especially early on. I, I really loved the, the LucasArts games and like Commander Keen, but again, it was mostly stuff I was just playing like demos or shareware versions of. Um, I, I own like a few PC games. I was really into... Um, Warcraft 2 and Command and Conquer, which you and I have in common, Sam. But consoles were always sort of this like mystical thing that I didn't quite understand, but was uh, as any kid would be like really attracted to. My parents didn't want to buy me one, you know, they preferred I go play outside, I guess. I, I don't really know why the PC was considered separate from that. Like, th- did you guys have that experience too that because it was a multi purpose device, it wasn't? like i don't know forbidden in the way that a game system could be when we got our first pc our parents were actually very protective of it like us not fucking it up with games <laughs> they had this like fear that games would would somehow like mess it up or we'd put loads of viruses or things like they they didn't understand the pc we didn't really understand the pc so it was actually qu- quite it was very much for like work first though we had a few like you know point and click games on it and things but it probably also costs like two thousand pounds right <laughs> right yeah <laughs> so they, yeah. good reason to be protective i had a similar sort of experience i guess like my parents sort of um they definitely saw the pc as more multi-utility but i've heard that as a fairly common sort of like um reasoning for people they just for some reason games were on pc were not I guess like Doom was demonized, but the actual idea of using a PC was seen as something new and exciting in the 90s and not necessarily vilified, whereas games consoles kind of always were. But yeah, I think that my dad, though, definitely got to the point where, similar to Matthew's parents, my dad blamed all of the PC gamer demos I installed on our <laughs> PC for it no longer working properly. And that was a, that was a great moment. My friend Craig, had a, he, had a, he had an Amiga and he had a Captain Planet game. And... Uh... <laughs> 
<laughs> the sort of, I don't know what you'd call it. Our, our own personal urban legend was that his dad broke Captain Planet by not understanding the Amiga by like hammering a button during load up and it meant one of the planeteers could never be accessed in the game ever again um he was just permanently fused into captain planet's ass or something there, you could play the gate levels in any order but one of them was you could never load it up and for some reason we we pinned this on his dad having pressed a key when it was loading up one time um so oh, yeah, it goes amazing. both way the kind of apocryphal stories yeah so um i guess to answer your question wes no but we had some good stories anyway <laughs> yeah <laughs> my uh my gateway into console games was i had a like a family friend basically an honorary aunt who for my birthday one year i don't remember how old i was probably like six or seven eight went to the local probably blockbuster um which was still around and rented a sega genesis or mega drive sorry uh here to respect <laughs> respect your culture today i'm, I'm on your turf. uh you used to be able to rent game consoles at movie stores at least in the u.s mm. i don't know if that was common in the uk yeah she rented it for me for my birthday and you know i got to keep it for like three days or something and the only game we rented with it was Sonic the Hedgehog. And I just played probably the first like three levels of Sonic the Hedgehog multiple times because that game was pretty hard when you were seven years old and did not right. own, <laughs> own the console. And I just I loved it so much that uh, she did it for me for my birthday like every year after that for several years. Um, oh, wow. And uh, one year they didn't have the Mega Drive anymore, but they did have the Saturn. So I got to rent that along with, I think, X-Men Children of the Atom and oh, maybe like Clockwork Knight uh, or Knights. I don't remember. The, I don't know if you guys remember that game. Again, not a great uh, all-timer platformer. And eventually, uh, well into the life of the Nintendo 64, I had an older cousin uh, hand me down his Mega Drive. Um, like he had GoldenEye. He was like, I don't need this old system anymore. So he gave me that in like probably 97, 98 or something. And I just went on a spree of going to uh, game stores and like buying up, you know, old used Genesis games, which were quite cheap by that point. My parents were 100% right in not wanting to buy me one of these because the, like I had the console fever at that point. And within a few years I would have and then 64, and then a GameCube, and then an Xbox, and then a PS2. Yeah, that's cool. So yeah, it was kind of inevitable. I like that for the several years there, though, you had the kind of like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory experience of one chocolate bar a year. And <laughs> exactly. It's like, you enjoy that, and then the concept of games goes away for another year. That's, well, it's uh, like, a, it's that's like a fairy tale. You turn into a man for three days a year, <laughs> and the clock strikes 12. Yeah, otherwise I'd have to go over to friends' places to play their consoles. And to this day, I am really bad at the 2D Mario games. Like, I probably used 300 lives, 500 lives going through Super Mario World on the Wii Virtual Console when I finally, like, played through it properly because I was so bad at it like just getting killed by goombas left and mm. right it was embarrassing it's like i didn't learn the language of it young enough and it's like trying to learn spanish or, or japanese or something as an adult i just like study it for a few weeks and then give up because i'm just completely helpless <laughs> yeah it's a pretty common experience at least there's a um, rewind on the nintendo switch online version so you can just uh, pretend that you're good even when you're not so that's good um Wes, what about games media at that time did you pay much attention to 
you know, magazines or websites while you were growing up. What did that landscape look like in the US from your perspective in the 90s and then the noughties? I was kind of a, I guess, kind of a latecomer to, to this stuff. It was really my interest in the lead up to the GameCube that had me go out and discover that there were actually magazines that people made about video games, which was pretty cool. And there were all these websites about video games. Really like the the gateway one for me, and I actually have it on my desk right now because I went uh, back to my dad's house a couple years ago and found a bunch of my old mags um, in storage, was an issue of uh, Next Generation Magazine from August 2021, uh, specifically the Life Cycle 2 Volume 3 Number 8 issue of Next Gen, which was like a couple months before the GameCube came out has a picture of Mario and uh, on the cover looking really pissed at Luigi who is playing a GameCube with a GameCube controller. I don't know if this is officially like Nintendo sanctioned art. Mm, um, right. <laughs> it doesn't really seem like it. They're a little off model, but but yeah, uh, this one, I was just so ravenous for information about the GameCube. I had definitely converted from a Sonic kid to a Nintendo kid with the N64. Uh, played so much GoldenEye, and I was so excited for the GameCube. And this magazine, I think I just saw at the local grocery store or Walmart and you know saw Mario and Luigi, saw the word GameCube. Specifically, the word GameCube exposed is like the mm-hmm. cover line on this. And I was like, I must have this. But it was the only issue of Next Gen I ever bought because the magazine uh, died like within six months of this and i think it was the last one that my local store carried for some reason that's because nintendo probably sued them into the ground for these dodgy <laughs> luigi and mario renders I've, I've looked it up on google they are not official <laughs> <laughs> luigi has like gums it's really unnerving it's quite a time capsule plus the latest on uh, sid meyer sim golf and star wars obi-wan so uh, yeah very um a great little time capsule of 2001 there i'm kind of curious that from there then like how do you combine i guess your passion for games media with your you know passion for games into a career so what when did you know you want to write about games for a living i would say when i was like 15 or 16 um i had been subscribing to electronic gaming monthly and nintendo power for a couple years um basically as soon as the gamecube came out that was my like that was my awakening moment and I subscribed to both of those magazines but EGM like I was like I need to subscribe to this this magazine and then I subscribed to Nintendo Power probably pretty soon after that um they always had really cool like uh subscriber gifts or or bonuses where you could get like a soundtrack from a game I think the one I might have chosen the first time I subscribed was the official CD soundtrack for Donkey Kong 64 because at the age of 13 for some reason I like needed to have the DK rap on a CD like that's where my mind was at this point yeah that's uh that's pretty cool I mean it's not but you know it's uh, I can see why at the time it would have seemed pretty cool so yeah <laughs> yeah yeah I mean it did have a, a curse word in it Sam so it was it was pretty pretty grown up yeah I read an issue of EGM around this time too I think I had the GameCube cover they did actually because um they would ship it to UK news agents and mm. you could spend a little bit extra and get it first of all I was shocked by how many ads there were inside compared to UK <laughs> mags just so many ads um because I know that's like the economics of how 
US mags work is that they're ad supporters, so the subscriptions can be super low in price, basically. Um, but yeah, I think I had that GameCube issue that has like loads of the characters. Basically, I think it's like Smash Bros. renders around the sort of rim of the GameCube, basically. And mm. um, yeah, it did seem like I just that that moment was huge, and it was interesting to get the kind of US perspective on on you know Xbox GameCube kicking off at the same time. Yeah, there's a lot of like console wars uh, stuff at at the time, which um, I don't know, maybe Matthew and I both uh, might have partaken in back then. I'm, <laughs> I'm, don't want to speak for you, Matthew, but I certainly did as a as a uh, newly minted not, Nintendo well, fan. I would never badmouth the other consoles, but I I did live in such a Nintendo bubble that it has frustrated Samuel in some of these episodes <laughs> where I claim that Xbox you know didn't sell like a single machine in the uk or whatever because i didn't personally know anyone who had one um so i have a very skewed vision of this this period of time which doesn't align with anyone else's <laughs> well i think there was a lot of skepticism towards microsoft when the xbox first launched and that you know that wasn't just here i think that people were just like you know pc had maybe a slightly fustier image at the time and so there was a question of what they actually bringing to the medium that mm-hmm. it didn't have before. But then I think EGN were one of the first, like the big proponents of Halo as a as a huge deal. I felt like they wrote about Halo loads in the issues that I read of theirs. So, um, yeah, sort of like, um, yeah, it's, you know, it seemed like a huge deal from the off because of that one game, really. Whereas from the US side, how do you think games media has differed from UK games media? The internet used to feel a little bit more local. So in the noughties, I know that sites like One Up was a huge deal. I know GamePro was a magazine and a website. There was Yugo and GameSpy. Do you think that variety created better games journalism generally you know, in the US? Better? Surely, surely not. Um, if you go back and read any of the the magazines or like game <laughs> reviews from from that time, I feel like they're almost universally pretty bad um like just not great writing uh at a technical level often very kind of surface level like criticism of of the games but in terms of like the regionality of it 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 feels like almost embarrassing to say but i feel like i was barely aware of what was us or uk or european like writing about games and it was probably because i wasn't reading any uk or european writing about games like i don't Mm. remember when i became aware of Eurogamer, but it was i have to imagine many years after i was reading um sites like ign and and gamespot Um, i was probably going on fan sites that were made in the uk but like it was just not something that i was even aware of so it feels like a big blind spot to me like who the significant voices were in the the uk media in the early 2000s um and especially in the the late 90s when the internet era was like just beginning yeah i think it's interesting because when i think about this period i know i mostly asked you about websites there but i think that to to be honest i don't think i really paid attention to websites until i was working in games media and then it suddenly dawned on me what a big deal they were compared to magazines (laughs) i think the the kind of watershed moment for me was that seeing how many comments Eurogamer's 8 out of 10 Metal Gear Solid 4 uh, review got and realizing how at mm. the center of the conversation they were in a way that I just simply wasn't working on a single format PlayStation magazine it's sort of that was like a just a bit of a dawning to me of just oh this is like the this is what reality is now it really is moving towards websites so mm. yeah that's kind of um Matthew I don't know if you you felt that as well 
outside of Eurogamer, there's 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 no one site that felt like particularly kind of British in any way. I associated UK games media with magazines and probably more like the forum scene, mm-hmm. um, which kind of grew out of like fandoms for individual mags. And I know that some of the people we've had on the podcast before kind of came up through that forum scene as well. So it was definitely a big thing for them. But I just assumed all the sites were just American. Yeah, it's it's true. That, but I suppose one thing I did also notice, though, Wes, is that, and I know you covered this actually on PC Gamer, but there was a podcast scene that exploded in the late mid to late noughties in the US that simply was not replicated on the UK mm. side and arguably still isn't. There aren't that many UK games podcasts. But I feel like in the US, you just had this massive scene of it driven largely by i guess like one up and you know those those kinds of outlets like, yeah um, one up was yeah. definitely the big one you know going back to your initial question here uh naming all these different sites you know you had the the game pros and the game spies and you go all competing with each other in addition to of course you know ign GameSpot. i wonder if that crowding was kind of what partially led to the more personality driven approach that one up found its way to and that really has become the dominant form of i mean of games media and kind of all media i guess at this point um you know maybe they really found they needed to distinguish themselves because there was that early period for websites where just getting news on the internet you know very quickly was extremely novel um i remember jeff gersman talking about on probably on a giant bomb cast about how they could put up screenshots for a video game that a publisher sent them and that would do insane traffic for GameSpot. Like, you know, that was zero effort (laughs) on their part, no work involved because nobody else was getting those screenshots. There were only a few big websites. They had, you know, the domain authority. People were coming to GameSpot to see screenshots. And by the time 1UP was really uh, kicking off, screenshots weren't necessarily going to cut it anymore for getting people to come to your website. And so I think they realized, like, well, shit, we have 50 amazing people here who work on a bunch of different magazines. We've got, like, every kind of interest covered here. We've got Xbox. We've got Nintendo. We've got all these different specialists. Like, let's do this podcast thing let's put them on video let's make these people you know the the star of the show and it absolutely worked for them they were just kind of ahead of the the technology curve and they weren't able to to monetize it in a way that kept one up alive which is a real shame because i i do think that you know going all the way back to egm as well that magazine was really good at surfacing the different personalities of their writers because even i knew just from reading probably like four or five issues over the course of a couple of years who like uh is it a dan shoe was yep. you know the um yeah like as like a, a presence in the magazine and like someone who had a perspective on games and then yeah you definitely saw that kind of filter down to one up and the sort of like owning little bits of the website having your own sort of area of the website to talk about your stuff um nature of that which i thought was really really cool at the time so that's why i ask about it just because i think that that scene has just changed so much now and you know the uk and game uk and us games media the lines are just so blurred because you know outlets just work so closely together there are like you know like much like we had on pc gamers sort mm-hmm. of international teams and yeah um i guess i'm not necessarily saying like it's um it's worse but it's just different you know it's a different world in a lot of ways so going back to how you got into games media then which i realize i cut you off there when you start talking about egm um, you mentioned <laughs> one of your notes in our document for this episode says who's ready to talk about final fantasy fan site so um to what extent is that fan site element part of your journey into games media 
uh, I mean, it is absolutely the the genesis of it. I don't remember how I found this one particular site. It was called Eyes on Final Fantasy. It's still around, uh, and they had a you know a really active forum at the time. It was probably the second biggest Final Fantasy forum. Just a lot of great people there, and that became a place that I spent most of my time. Like made some friendships there that I still have in real life. Pretty quickly. Uh, after I started posting there, I don't remember if they had like an open call for people to work on the site or if I just volunteered or what. But around 2005, I started writing news posts for this fan site and just going to a site like IGN or something whenever they had news about a new Final Fantasy game uh, or just a new like Squaresoft or Square Enix game in general. And I would just rewrite the news basically and put it up on this fan site. And I probably wrote a couple hundred posts on the site over the next few years, you know, and that was kind of like me cutting my teeth. And I'm sure most of the writing is not particularly good, but it was just a, it was good practice, you know? Um, And from there in college, I started doing some, some freelancing. Uh, I freelanced for a site called um, Nintendo Wii Fanboy, which uh, is a pretty <laughs> embarrassing name in hindsight, but it was a spinoff of the, you know, the blog era Joystick and Kotaku were both, you know, really, really big. And Joystick yeah. had a couple spinoffs, um, Nintendo Wii Fanboy, and then I don't remember what the, I guess Xbox 360 Fanboy was probably the other one. Um, right. right. And they like reposted some stuff from Joystick proper, but then produced a bunch of their own articles. And I guess, you know, AOL was hoping to grow them into bigger brands or something, which never ended up happening. But I wrote a column about games that would be great on the Wii with like the Wii motion controls and nunchuck and stuff. Not really the most exciting premise for a column, but I kind of just got to write about cool games i think one of the early ones i wrote about was uh this game called cosmic smash for the dreamcast which has just gotten Mm -hmm. a remake on psvr 2 now so that's that's kind of cool i was like i guess 15 years ahead of the the curve in in pitching that (laughs) one i would not like to have played that with a wii remote um motion (laughs) plus maybe but original Wii remote that would be rough yeah yeah i think you're in hindsight you're probably right there how does that lead to you um getting more sort of like full-time work where i did a bunch of of freelancing you know i graduated college in 2010 which uh at least in the u.s was a real bad economy i don't remember if if the uk was the same but over here it was like kind of right after the like subprime mortgage crisis uh where we figured out the real estate industry was literally built on on nothing um just complete bullshit so yeah same here yeah not a lot of great uh opportunities at the time so i was mostly freelancing and um got a great tip from someone i was in a class with who was like you should pitch this uh site how stuff works they'll like let you if you can write about kind of anything as a generalist like you can get work from them and they paid super well And I would just write articles for them about how ATM skimmers work or like how to get the rights from your neighbor's property to like put a a driveway through it or something. Just like random (laughs) bullshit that I would just have to research and then write an article on and like cite all my sources. And I would get like 400 bucks for it, Um, which was like great money for someone who had just graduated college and was living like rent free in a Uh, family like my grandparents old house that my family hadn't gotten around to selling yet Um, so I kind of just like started doing some freelance here and there 
and then um, sent in an application to tested.com, which was a new tech site, part of the giant bomb family. And uh, I owe a tremendous debt to Will Smith for getting my application to freelance uh, write news for tested, which I had written in like uh, Microsoft WordPad or whatever and saved as an RTF file. I don't know if you guys remember RTFs. <laughs> Um, oh yeah, still got those. Still got a few of those sticking around. <laughs> and then copy and pasted it into the email. And when I pasted it in, it looked fine. But then when I sent it, it collapsed like all twelve paragraphs that I had written into one sentence. Uh, so he just got the most garbled, like, t- like the worst application anyone has ever sent for a writing job in in history. <laughs> and instead of just immediately deleting it, which is what I absolutely would have done, he wrote back and he was like, hey, I can't read this. Can you like send it as an attachment? And I was like, oh, my God, holy shit. Like, how did this happen? Like, I'm so sorry. And sent it to <laughs> sent it back to him. And they ended up um, hiring me as a as a freelancer. And I did a, a bunch of work for for tested for years, first doing news and then features eventually did more and more game stuff on the side until that clearly became like the thing that I wanted to do more than more than tech. I was always amazed that you could actually write about hardware as well as write eloquently about games <laughs> because it seemed like those those things you tend to I always thought assume people had like one skill or the other but you seem to have both so uh yeah pretty impressive that you had your brains in the uh, you know how to build a PC you know kind of graphics card side of things as well. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> um so how do you end up on PC Gamer from there? When I moved out here uh, I ended up meeting Evan Lottie, who is still um, still at PC Gamer. He's been there for a very long time. He's the the global EIC of PC Gamer, and uh, met Evan. And after a few years, um, they were eventually hiring for another spot in the U.S., which was like a features editor uh, position. And I had spent the last kind of two years or so it tested mostly writing like a mix of news and features i would do like a few news stories a day and then i would do like a couple features a month um that were usually fairly long you know just like picking some topic i thought was interesting and probably writing too much about it uh in hindsight um but that was kind of my i was like really eager to do more of that stuff and and thanks to all the people i met uh, moving to San Francisco, that really gave me an an in for for that job. Yeah, for sure. Um, so yeah, you've been there for now for a, you know a long time. So you've really sort of you know took the opportunity and ran with it really. So one thing I really liked about how you progressed at PC Gamer is how you transitioned from a hardware role to something resembling a traditional features editor role that you might have on a magazine. I felt like you worked really hard to build that space for yourself on the site, and uh, it made the website you know richer as a result. Can you talk about doing that and how you sort of did go from guy who reviews graphics cards to, you know, driving a lot of the voice of the the site? Yeah, well, thank you for the compliment, first of all. But yeah, I was, you know, I was technically the title I was hired into was features editor, but I was quite green at the time. I had done a good bit of writing, but not really much editing, you know, and editor is always kind of a a strange title on on websites. I think often it's applied to everybody on a team regardless of what your your job is i didn't have much experience doing you know commissioning other writers giving people you know briefs for what they should be writing about coming up with you know larger plans for like here's a game coming out what are all the different angles we're gonna cover it from Uh, so initially i didn't have i wasn't doing too much of that um, and i'd only been on the team for probably 
eight or ten months when we made the decision to cover hardware more in depth and i did have that tech background from working at tested for a few years of freelancing for them so our our boss uh tim clark who i think's also been on the back page is that right yep that's right tim came to me and was like you know we we want to learn launch a hardware section uh, on the website and like do you want to be in charge of it and you know it paid better and Honestly, I didn't, I don't think I really was enthusiastic about it, but it felt like one of those things where if I didn't take it on, it was kind of going to be partially my responsibility anyway. So I might as well just like get paid more for it and, you know, like have it be, have it be my actual job. Um, so I like launched the hardware section, was in charge of that and did that for a couple years. And like, honestly, it really burned me out. It stopped being fun pretty quickly. I think I learned that I really enjoy hardware, but it is absolutely like the passion that can be ruined by it being my full-time focus. You know, like I like the tinkering aspect of it, but when you write about games, you have so many opportunities to talk about the human element, the people who make the games, how people play with them. Like there's just, and video games have stories generally, right? There's Mm. not a lot of that in graphics cards. You know, there's 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 not too many narratives attached to GPU these GPUs these days. Like back in the day, they had the weird like fairy box art or whatever, um, but they kind of killed that killed that off. So not a lot of personality in <laughs> hardware. <laughs> the one interesting bit of hardware. <laughs> Who is that fairy and where did she come from? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it's funny because I one of the things I ended up doing when I was editor in chief of PC Gamer UK was when I would log in in the morning there would be a review from um, Jared, one of the features editors, one of the hardware editors in the US for me to read. And Jared did write about AMD and NVIDIA like it was like Game of Thrones or something. And it was like this kind of epic narrative of, you know, um, sort of like giants, basically. And so I became very familiar with it from that. Mm. But definitely writing those reviews is a is it a you know it's not necessarily for everyone it really does the specialist side of, of, of that is yeah you've got to have the passion a very specific passion for it or you just you just can't do it so i can see why it would burn you out you know yeah i i think i could do something with hardware full time but in, but not kind of within the constraints of a traditional media outlet where there are just things that you need to cover from a certain way you know like you need to review a CPU or a GPU and tell people you know by based on all the testing you've done like is this the one you should buy or not right um there's so much cool stuff out there in the world of PC hardware and like hobbyist stuff like people who get super into mechanical keyboards like there's tons of interesting avenues you can go down but you can't kind of you can't do just that on a website like PC Gamer. You need to offer buying advice. You need to cover the news, and that mm. stuff just didn't really like keep me invested enough um, at the time, especially because we had a very small hardware team of people who were working full time. So it just like it just didn't quite work for me, and I was really desperate to get back to games after doing that for a couple of years. And so I was able to make that that transition back to more or less my old role of features editor. And I think by that time, I just had had a lot more experience doing commissioning, um, doing kind of organizational stuff, doing planning. And also I had like the, you know, that feeling of like when you get to make 
a change in your in your career or in your life that just feels right and you're relieved and you feel like a weight has been lifted and like you get that renewed burst of enthusiasm like that was how I felt at that time right so I think that really motivated me to just go out and commission as many cool stories about you know weird niche corners of PC gaming or stories about the the big PC games that were coming out then but you know trying to get trying to get an interview or trying to cover some cultural aspect of it beyond just what's our review say you know what's the news I think that's what I I really liked about about working with you is because I was like definitely the in the headspace of um, if I look at this um, year-on-year Black Friday graph again, I will just have to like leave <laughs> Games Media, which is basically what I did. Um, but you always had your eye on the prize for like building big, ambitious features. You were like, I want to do this multi-month project. I want to get all these writers involved. I want to get all these devs involved. And I really like that about your your vision for the site because not all websites can afford to do that sort of thing or don't you know don't invest in that sort of thing. And so yeah, I, I think it was. It was cool that you you just you know you you made that your mission. And what are your highlights of um, what you've produced on PC Gamers so far, or what you've overseen in that role? Oh, geez. Well, one of the ones that you're I think alluding to there is uh, I did this list of the 50 most influential PC games of all time. The list itself, I could kind of take or leave like the the items on it, but I was really proud of how I put it together, which was just going out to a ton of different game developers and. Uh, games journalists who had written for sites like one up over the years all kinds of different sites and just asking them like hey will you write a couple paragraphs about this particular game so i got all kinds of interesting people to contribute to that i got some uh cliffy b i got jeff green who was an editor of computer gaming world magazine for a long Mm -hmm. time uh never got will Wright. couldn't track him down um, I did get a guy whose name I'm blanking on now, but he was kind of the father of the the Xbox um, who left quite early on. Ed something um, really interesting. Ed guy. Freeze. Freeze. Ed Freeze. Ed Freeze. That's yeah. it. Um, a, a bunch of other people's names that are escaping me at the moment, um, but that was a really fun project to put together uh, that I mostly did in my personal time, honestly. Uh, I don't do so much of that <laughs> anymore. Um, I mostly <laughs> keep work to work hours. Jody McGregor is one of our longtime contributors who's been uh, full-time on the staff for a few years now, but he was a freelancer for a really long time. And I can't say that I was the one who discovered Jody uh, for PC Gamer, but he did become like my go-to features writer for, for many years. Like anytime I had an idea that I was either too lazy to do myself or honestly just didn't think I had the the chops for it. I would just be like, hey, Jody, here's the pitch. You know, do you want to write this uh, in the next month? And he would do it. Uh, so he went and did a, a great feature about Warhammer 40K. Warhammer Online? Was that the name of it? I guess it wasn't 40K, was it? It was traditional Warhammer. Yeah, Warhammer Online. Yeah, it was fantasy, I think. One of my favorite like genres of story is... MMO or online game that gets shut down and then community of people who are so dedicated to that game uh, that they can't play anything else decide to resurrect it and spend like 10 years, you know, figuring out how to rebuild the server infrastructure and everything. Like you can play Warhammer online right now thanks to fans who have gone to extreme lengths to bring that game back to life. Uh, and he went in and kind of wrote about the whole resurrection of that game, uh, which was really cool. He did a great feature about uh, why the cyberpunk genre of video games has like trended away from 
actually being punk and counterculture into being games usually about just like cops but with neon (laughs) (laughs) right so that, that was like a good piece of criticism that i was really happy he wrote i've gotten to do some cool you know cover stories for for the mag over the years uh, and one very uncool one in hindsight, which was interviewing Palmer Lucky um, before he had gone full <laughs> full mask off. Um, kind of regret that one. <laughs> yeah, his uh, his Twitter feeds a tough a tough hang, I must say, um, uh, and the rest of it. But yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's 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 cool. I mean, you bringing Jody and also reduced my weekend work because Jody was suddenly you know weekend editor who knows exactly how to run the site on Saturday and Sunday, and I was like, ah. Oh, there's no more DMs on Twitter for for me. That was um that was good news. Uh, so uh, well, something uh, something you did recently that I thought was really cool is you arranged some developer roundtables at GDC. How did that come together, and what was the sort of result of that? I have the privilege of living in San Francisco. There are all these game developers coming to this event. It's generally an event where people are a bit less guarded because it's kind of more academic. It's more industry. People are not there to promote their stuff to such an extent as they are at, you know, an event like an an E3 or a Gamescom or something. Uh, So you can kind of just reach out to to people and see if they're interested in talking about something. You know, I've done like big interviews at GDC in the past. Um, One of the first ones I did probably in like 2015 or so that I was really proud of was talking to a bunch of folks about the the immersive sim where it was at at the time. Uh, I did one kind of on RPGs as well with uh, Josh Sawyer uh, from Obsidian and Brian Fargo of uh, In Exile. But Mm. at the time when I did those, they were the kind of things where I would like, you know, take my little uh, dictaphone, record this hour conversation between these people and then turn it into like a 4,000 you know, word Q and A interview on the website that not a lot of people want to read. It turns out uh, it's really hard to get people to read that kind of interview. So at this point, I feel like we've learned so much about what our audience is interested in, what Google algorithms are interested in, all, you know, all, all of that kind of stuff, right? So going into this GDC, we sort of had the plan of okay, if we're going to do these interviews, let's get a good quality recording so we can put it out as a podcast. Let's invite people who have worked on something, you know, semi-recent or a game that is going to be of interest to a good chunk of the audience that we can potentially mine several news stories out of this conversation, right? So that even if somebody doesn't want to listen to a full hour and a half of audio or they don't want to read 5,000 words of, of transcription, they'll still get this like one interesting anecdote about a game or this one bit of potentially breaking news about a game, right? So we kind of went in with the idea of each of these conversations producing several different things for us. And hopefully one of those things will interest somebody who comes to PC Gamer to read or, or listen to stuff about games. So that was the that was kind of what I was gunning for at the outset. Yeah, it's cool. I saw there was like an article about um, how they, uh, you know, Mike Laidlaw, ex-Bioware and how Dragon Age companions were written and stuff like that. So yeah, it's cool that you're able to derive a bunch of different features off the back of that. I was um, incidentally in the same bar as Josh Sawyer at GDC, but I was so sort of like 
obliterated from jet lag i basically just left because i didn't want to get to the point where i had to talk to him and i knew it would be a net loss no matter what i said because i was just so tired and i thought i cannot intellectually impress this man so i just gotta get i just gotta get the hell out of there and that's what i did basically i mean that's that's actually quite fitting for the role-playing game teammates <laughs> yeah i guess he would probably appreciate that detail um but yes your character um, traits are so shitty that you're just not even worth talking to you, you just need a either a good uh bike or watch or classic car anecdote to to lead off with and and that's your <laughs> your in for josh i really wanted to talk to him about shower ui because i think he did like a quite a big tweet <laughs> at some point about a shower that had like five different nozzles on it and eight buttons or something and i was just like and i am obsessed with that as well like how there is there is no good shower ui until there is some kind of apple related shower device i think it's always going to be that way but again you know didn't want to seem like i was just someone who was like twitter stalking him and trying to make conversation best to just leave the situation altogether and and never find out that's what i think but uh yeah um <laughs> one one so, last thing about those those gdc talks sam which i think one reason they came together really well i think is as much as i love and appreciate getting to ask game developers questions about the games they make i think the best stuff almost inevitably comes from people being more relaxed and talking to their peers about the things they make and their peers are also just going to have insights and questions that I would not have because I don't make video games so that was a big part of my goal for that was get two people like Mike Laidlaw and Josh Sawyer in a room together and let them talk to each other with kind of as little of my interference as as possible and a hope that that conversation bears fruit you know because you're just you're going to be less guarded when you're talking to someone who knows exactly what the fuck they're, they're talking about who has made games the same way you have and just has insights that that i would not have so i'm sure the coolest conversations at gdc are the ones that just happen at bars or at these kind of just like chill meetings where people just get to talk about how how they make games but if i could capture even a little sliver of that it was uh, i was going to be gonna be happy with it yeah for sure i think like it's yeah not a lot of that stuff is on the record whereas in you know comic books for example you have comic cons where you do have those kind of creative roundtables people talk about working image in the 90s or whatever or you have you know those hollywood reporter actor or director roundtables which do get that thing of you know the interplay between the different actors so they, they are asking each other questions yeah. so yeah really cool that you were able to put that together you know um yeah so Wes, I um, last point on PC Gamer, I guess, before we um, move on to something else that you're working on. What are your memories of working with me? Uh, what's, the, <laughs> what's your take on Samuel Roberts? I guess I should ask because I have you on my podcast. So, yeah, what's the, what's the deal there? <laughs> I'm just like, I'm wondering what Matthew is expecting from this. Like, what dark this secrets? Is the therapy bit of the podcast. <laughs> we have a habit of asking guests to, like, basically evaluate us as people. It's You're, weird. Review us, yes. Please review us. Uh, well, I think we had some good times uh, commiserating over figuring out how to make SEO work on PC Gamer without wanting to absolutely kill ourselves like i think we probably wanted to kill ourselves a little bit neither of us went and did it so we're, we're still here that's that says something um absolutely i think we were kind of kindred spirits in our views on the site and on what we liked in in games um i thought i think we always got along really well something that has really stood out to me listening to uh the back page over the the last few months is uh, how often you laugh on this podcast and it occurred to me like I don't know if I ever heard Sam laugh like in a meeting <laughs> at PC Gamer 
<laughs> this is a very different Samuel Roberts. So whoever wrote that uh, that fucking iTunes review a couple months ago <laughs> about your laugh being like the uh, reason for the one star, that guy doesn't know what the fuck he's talking about. the 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 Sam laugh is is a delight, and I'm glad I'm glad that it is a, a key part of the back page identity. <laughs> oh, I appreciate that. I think that. It- you know, I took my time on PC Gamer just too seriously in retrospect, and it's weird. Doing this podcast, I think I found my critical voice more doing this podcast than I ever did working games media, which is a bit of a shame because I think I always felt this pressure of being a multi-format person at heart who mm-hmm. was trying to adapt to PC gaming and not necessarily like show my show my ass and just get, <laughs> get things wrong. So I think that put a little bit of caution in me, yeah. which in retrospect probably just held me back from thriving if that makes sense this really is therapy but you know what i mean where <laughs> yeah. did you ever have a bit of that you know you know our most of our interactions probably 95 percent of them were in meetings that were at 9 a.m for me and 5 p.m for you so like already <laughs> not the the best setup for like you know really uh jovial times um but i think you were in charge of the uk team at a time when we were going through like not terrible growing pains but we were growing a lot and there was just sort of a natural like process of having to figure out how you become a bigger team and that was like like challenging to navigate my guess is that you were maybe too polite to kind of carve out a more satisfying set of responsibilities for yourself because like you clearly are super enthusiastic about games but i don't know if you were able to take advantage of that enthusiasm uh to to the fullest at the time I think you're right. I was the, my number one weakness was I was terrible at asking for help. So as soon as I left PC Gamer, the UK team basically expanded to like you know be fully functional in UK hours. And when I was there, it was just me and two other people. So it's a completely different ball game, really. So I was really just two or three months away from probably getting that opportunity to to carve out that niche a little bit. But that said, I was just, I was just so passionate about it because I was so certain that this is like this is what a good website looks like and it is you do have to fight the odds a bit to build a website that is able to have those values and not just be an seo chasing machine so i was incredibly proud of being part of its growth journey even though i you know i fully um you know i fully believe that you um you evan tyler um steven etc in the us andy chalk of course really kind of you know built out that website into what it became it was just amazing to be part of it because i just really just really loved it you know so uh yeah um Oh gosh, this really is therapy, isn't it? But I uh, know it's those are kind words. The thing about laughing is very funny. I was very intense in those meetings because I thought I just have to like because I'm you know I'm in charge of the UK team. I just have to seem super competent. So I probably just was never in a fun mood. So I was like, okay, this is Evan's one interaction with me this week. I better just not seem like a fucking idiot. <laughs> and that was honestly really what was going through my head. So uh, yeah, I yeah. mean, I think just in hindsight, like it's it's probably okay to come off some like like the right kind of idiot probably. <laughs> probably in in the workplace you know uh there's always a line right but i think one of the trickiest things about navigating art the kind of career progression you go through in media is like early on you kind of need to be the person who can say yes to anything and deliver and then at some point you need to be the person who knows when to say no to stuff because it's going to either destroy your you know your desire to do the work or you're not going to be able to do it to the the level of quality that you want you know um and i i always try to keep in mind like how much can i do 
as well as I want to do it. And if I have the opportunity to turn something down because I want to focus on something else, you know, I, I try to, I try to do that. Yeah. I think you navigate that really successfully. So yeah. Um, that's a, a good way to wrap up that very self-indulgent part of this podcast. So <laughs> yeah. Okay. So um, Wes, uh, switching tack, tell us about read only memo, your emulation newsletter. It's really cool to see you launch this as a sub project because on PC game, you've been covering the emulation scene and not in a kind of like gaudy um, look at me playing rogue leader on my steam deck kind of way <laughs> in more of a kind of like hobbyist looking at the people actually making this happen and the and also the kinds of weird games uncovered off the back of the emulation scene that maybe you know that hadn't had fan translations that sort of thing so what were the origins of this as a project well thank you for teeing me up uh, i feel like i don't even need to to pitch this thing now <laughs> <laughs> good uh you know it it really came out of um like you say like i i wrote about have been writing about emulation on PC Gamer for a long time, particularly Dolphin, which is the GameCube and Wii emulator that I have been a fan of for a really long time. I probably first used in the early 2010s or late teens, late aughts. I don't even remember. It's been a long, around for a long time. It's always just been a topic that's interested me, I guess, ever since I was in like computer lab in school, which is that that feels like a phrase that dates me do they have computer labs anymore everybody just has a computer like that's <laughs> such a dead concept <laughs> very millennial concept i think <laughs> yeah. um and like figuring out we could download snes 9x onto the computers and play super metroid in class so i don't know that kind of just like stuck with me um so i've been writing about it for a long time and this year kind of just really felt the desire to have something that I that I own completely that is a, a personal project that I can put a lot of passion into you you guys were honestly partially an, an inspiration for that of like seeing how much fun you have with this podcast and talking about games and I was like I should have an outlet like that as much as I love my work on PC Gamer it is still work and there are things uh -huh. that I'm not going to write on PC Gamer because they're just not going to it's not worth the work hours to write about some aspect of emulation that a couple thousand people probably are interested in reading about but that's worth it to me if I'm interested in it uh, so it was sort of just like here's a place I can put some of my passion and it was a really good excuse to push myself to start making more connections in that space and like going out to people asking them for interviews even if it's just like via chat on discord you know and building up some sources so that when something is legitimately breaking news uh, that would be relevant on pc gamer like i know who to go to for comment you know so it was kind of just like mm -hmm. a nice dovetail where it could be beneficial to me personally and be a fulfilling thing to work on and fun and it could also pay dividends at work and give me kind of a, a better in to some some avenues in that space that is very, you know, it, it's like a hobby scene, right? There's a bajillion different people spread out over all these different platforms and projects. And uh, if you're not really keyed into it, like it's it's hard to know where to start. Um, so I'm kind of just giving myself an excuse to 
dig into it more yeah it's cool you had um is it danny o'dwyer as like a guest columnist last week um so you know you're kind of like building it out in that respect or two and bringing different contributors in is that something you're just focused on doing to kind of like mix things up yeah i mean it's it's partially uh like i'm kind of framing this thing as emulation news with like two big stories in each issue which is bi-weekly and then a bunch of little tidbits like i'm trying to keep it fairly bullet pointy and like quick to read mm. i'm not using it as a space for me to just like write a sh- thousand words about a, a game that i like that i played it on an emulator uh, but i thought a fun way to honestly like partially promote the thing would be to just go out to people who's writing on games or or other work you know around games i really respect and just ask them like hey do you want to write a really short thing about some memory you have of playing a game on an emulator and then i'll try to dig up some trivia about you know how well that game runs an emulator or something about the history of the emulator that it it would run in just to kind of give it a little bit of extra context i guess for for the newsletter um so i did that uh with danny for the first one and i've been reaching out to to other folks asking them if they want to partake um so it's kind of just a fun way to get more explicit games writing into the thing without it just being me just shitting out an extra 500 words of my own thoughts about about games well if you want a guest uh, a guest columnist uh, from the back page then just let me know and i'll happily oblige absolutely I think it's the one kind of games media writing i can probably still do so <laughs> yeah um so matthew you're an emulation skeptic and uh where's i was curious why is that scene so interesting to you and what makes it worth covering in that level of detail well, I mean, I, f- I feel like first I want to hear I want to hear Matthew's actual take here and make sure that you're not, you know, uh, besmirching his his reputation. <laughs> no, Sorry, no, it's, it's it's true. Uh, uh, well, is it true? I, I think the thing I kind of rail against a little bit is some corners of the Internet, particularly with emulating like new games, like new Switch games and where they run better on PC than they do the hardware. I kind of balk a little bit at the scoffing kind of nature of it, which mm. isn't what you're doing. <laughs> but this sort of like, you fools, why are you playing this on Switch? The thing it was made for, rather than PC, which is the thing you don't necessarily own. That's always kind of annoyed me. I, I think the emulation thing, for me, it is quite niche and it is quite hobbyist. And there's just too much stuff I have to kind of keep on top of mm-hmm. to be able to kind of indulge in that. I don't really go back and play a lot of old stuff generally. In what I do, you know, I'm catered for in what I have. I sort of feel bad. I've been reading read-only memo in the run-up to this and thinking, oh, this is just so much more sophisticated than my very crude <laughs> takes on emulation, which I've shared on this podcast. It actually made me feel a bit sheepish. I, th- I think what you're looking at is slightly different to just this, like, raw power, replace this thing. And, of course, I'm not down on the... Oh, what's the word I'm looking preservation. for? Preservation. The preservation element. Um, which which is vital. Also, I mean, my really basic bitch take is I don't really like doing stuff through my PC. <laughs> like I like the console experience for what it is. Yeah. Uh, and I don't want to play those games on my PC. I mean, to, to be completely fair, I have absolutely scoffed in the past. So you're you're not a hundred percent wrong in in your okay. read. You know, there there are there are plenty of. <laughs> emulation enthusiasts out there uh which i have have been one at some point who do sort of look at people playing a game in a way that that you can have such a better experience you know some other way that's almost like the dna of pc gaming at this point right is looking at people playing a game on a console and going 
well, it's just so much better on PC, right? At least if you don't have all the shader stutter and all the like bad shit that's been going on on PC ports mm. the last year or so. But I think there's a lot of reasons to to love it. And one of the big ones, I think only this box is only checked if you are the kind of person who has those PC gamer tendencies where you find it satisfying tinkering with games and modding games and kind of Mm. trying to get the most out of them in some particular avenue, whether it's deeply technical or whether it's, you know, even trying to recreate the experience of playing a game on a CRT by using certain filters and things that, you know, change the the way the image looks. It's kind of funny that emulation has this, this branch where it's all about, you know, 4K maximum quality, high-res texture pack, like widescreen hack, all of these things to make a game look as kind of new as it possibly can. And then there's this other avenue where it's like, I want this to look like it was run through a dog shit composite cable, like, <laughs> you know, plugged into my yeah. cable box and then plugged into my TV. Uh, and like, you can do both of those things, um, but it definitely takes like a lot of tinkering to, to kind of nail either one. I think the big thing for me is I'm a strong believer in like if I buy a piece of software, I should be able to do kind of whatever I want with it within within reason. Right. Like, I don't think I should be able to to sell it to other people on on online. I mean, like sell on eBay, but like not make copies of it and sell it. Right. But like I should Mm. be able to you know, take a PlayStation 2 disc and put it in my PC and play it on my PC if I want to. I bought that PS2 game, and I know that's not technically how software licenses work and all that stuff, but I think our copyright system is incredibly broken, and all of the stuff around emulation, you know, all of the kind of legal gray area, I think most of it should just be legal and should not be gray area. Um, I think you should be able to hack and reverse engineer a console to your heart's content if you have the skills to do that. It's it's a really messy like legal question, but generally I think if you're not pirating games, if you're using your own hardware, if you're doing this stuff, you should be able to to go wild with it. And it's, you know, going back to Nintendo, which is like really near and dear to to both of us and like seeing what's going on with the like Tears of the Kingdom emulation and Man, when Breath of the Wild came out, like I played so much of that game on the Wii U at 720p, 26 FPS, like being generous, you know, that game did not run super well. And I think Nintendo for such a long time has been creating games within the limits of very affordable hardware. And they use the strength of their art direction and their design to make up for that. I mean, even going back to the Game Boy, right? Like the Game Boy was kind of a piece of shit when it came out but it had Tetris on it and they knew how to make games for their very limited hardware that were incredible. And mm. I think if you can have that limited game experience, but free it to some extent from those limitations, it can only be better. You know, the magic of breath of the wild was not that it ran at 25 FPS. It was that they managed to create this incredible expansive world with like a beautiful art style and it barely worked on that hardware, but man, does it look really, really nice if you run it at four times, eight times that resolution at a solid frame rate. And it's just like, it's just a more fun game for me. And it's a clearer realization of the vision that they had for it that mm. they just, you know, did not build a piece of hardware that cost $500 because that's not the way Nintendo 
markets itself. You know, they're never going to make a PS5 type console probably in the future. They're going to always make something that's a little a little unique and much more affordable for them and for the audience. And that's that's okay. Like you have to make peace with that. But then I want to be able to put it on my PC and play it, you know, in a way that looks freaking amazing. As long as you don't think I'm an idiot for proudly <laughs> sticking with my Switch. <laughs> no one does, Matthew. That's all I ask. So much of this is just wounded pride. You know, it's it's just not wanting to... Having gone through... No, I, I can't admit that I'm wrong. That's <laughs> the, the process of, like, doing the, the Switch custom firmware stuff, which I did, you are not an idiot if you don't do that because it is a pain in the ass uh, and it is very complicated. <laughs> but I wanted to, like, prove that I could do it the legit way and not just, like, download, you know... Uh, a hacked version of the the um, console keys or whatever that you need for for the emulator but um mm. uh going back to the the newsletter just a little bit like sam you mentioned before stuff like fan translations and stuff and that that is what really gets me excited about the emulation scene is that it is kind of an avenue towards being able to experience games that I never thought I would be able to experience or games that I didn't even to this day, like every time I'm doing a new issue of this newsletter, I'm finding out about cool looking Japanese games that I had no idea existed up until the the point at which I'm just like going on romhacking.net or some random person's Twitter feed and finding they translated some old RPG or action game that looks really cool. That's so exciting to me and that stuff wouldn't happen without emulators. And thanks to emulation becoming kind of more and more accepted and, and mainstream, we now have some companies uh, like Limited Run Games, for example, who are putting out like official translations of games that never got them before. Um, you've got companies like um, Digital Eclipse doing stuff like the Atari 50th Anniversary Collection where they're using emulation as like an avenue to basically create I don't even know what you would call their games, like a museum exhibit, you know? Is it like a historical document first and then sort of a collection of games second? Um, so that yeah. that stuff is really exciting to me, uh, you know, even if a lot of the game companies themselves still look at it as sort of a dirty word when they're talking about the the hobbyist scene. You know, Nintendo's obviously not not a fan of emulation, but they made the virtual console and that was just emulation that they put a, a different face on and that's the future of this of this industry as they try to mine their back catalog more and more it's going to be through emulation you know they're not going to do native ports of all of their hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of old games so it's going to only become more common it's going to be interesting to see how they kind of how they frame it i think yeah i think mm. i think what i like about your emulation coverage is i i sort of like I'm with Matthew a little bit on games that are commercially available. I think, like, regardless of whether they can run another hardware, like, I think anything that potentially encourages people to, to not buy games or circumvent buying games that I'm like, I have no, I have no support for. But when it comes to things like you covered, Racing Lagoon, a PS One, SquareSoft RPG, you know, right from the kind of like late '90s mm -hmm. era, um, and I that sort of thing, it's like kind of like what you're alluding to there's no it's not commercially available you cannot give square enix money for that game but it is an interesting artifact that people should be able to to, to to discover and learn about and it is legitimately interesting that someone's fan translated this game and it's now a lost piece of history you can slot into you know your knowledge base of what what they were making at that time and yeah. that's the kind of coverage of yours i really like where it's like this is 
it's stuff that is obviously tinged with your interests but it's also you know it's but it's about the kind of like the undertaking to bring it to life so yeah that's what i like about your your emulation coverage yeah you know the the games industry i think is has proven for decades at this point to be a terrible steward of its own legacy in the early days they just didn't have processes for retaining data you know they would finish a game and be like that's it. We did it. Like we we made a bunch of discs. Like delete it off the hard drives, or they would just lose stuff. You know, um, like Panzer Dragoon Saga is an example of a game that was not printed in in large quantities. I don't know how many discs they made of that game, but it's it's not a lot. And I believe Sega lost the source code for for that game. Now that might be apocryphal. Maybe it is still sitting on a server somewhere. But I would not be surprised if the source code for that game is completely lost to time. And if they only made, you know, 50,000 discs or something of that game, like, do you know what the shelf life of a CD is? Like, it's not great, especially if it's not, you know, kept in a in a museum archive somewhere. Those are the kind of games that are going to eventually disappear or not be playable on old hardware when the hardware fails. And like emulation is kind of going to be the only avenue for for that stuff so kind of whether the games industry likes it or not people are going to take it upon themselves to make sure that people can experience these games 50 years from now okay well well, that's a great note to uh to take a break then i think and then we'll come back in section two and talk a bit about nintendo in the noughties where it's another subject that's close to your heart sounds good Welcome back to the podcast. So in this section, we're going to talk to Wes a little bit about Nintendo in the noughties, subject close to his heart. Uh, by the way, every time I say noughties on this website, I do sort of like feel the the hairs on my skin prick up a little bit. There's still something wrong about that word somehow. So Wes, when we were talking about you coming on the podcast, one of the things you mentioned to me was an EGM top 100 list that you read in 2001. And you mentioned this as being a big deal to you at the time. Um, I'll read the top 25 out in a moment for context for the listeners. But why was that list a big deal to you as someone who was just getting into games? You know, it's it's funny to compare it now to my own knowledge of making uh, these sorts of lists. You know, PC Gamer does a top 100 list every year that you you have taken part in many times. Matthew, I'm sure you have been involved in many a best games, oh, yeah, yeah. best games ever list. Uh, I love it. I love a good list. But for me, like encountering this, this was probably the first list like that I had ever read. And the fact that it like spanned multiple systems, generations of consoles from people who clearly knew so much about video games, it just felt like a holy text at the time. Like I had discovered the actual definitive list of the best video <laughs> games ever made. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, it's it's an interesting list as well because I, I tracked it down on an old IGN board and people were in there arguing about the list like people still do argue about lists of video games <laughs> on websites to this day. Nothing's changed. Yeah, exactly. But I found it really interesting because it's not a very PC-leaning list. It's a very console-heavy list. And I, I assume that's by design, but... Um, this list doesn't have i don't think it has deus ex in it for example i think it has no pc games actually um it's i think it was all console yeah yeah so super interesting right so i'll i'll just read out quickly i will say number 26 is chrono trigger one of my favorites so uh sort of mention that for uh, getting to the top 25 so got original zelda at 25 super castlevania 4 at 24 gunstar heroes a matthew favorite at 23 super mario bros at 22 
Uh, 21 is Dragon Force, a game I'm not familiar with. Gallagher at 20. 19 is Panzer Dragoon Saga, a game that no one has played, like you say, Wes. 18 is Pokemon Puzzle League. That's an interesting choice. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's higher, than, by the way, than uh, than um, uh, Link's Awakening, I believe. Um, so, yeah, that's uh, that's a funny bit of list making. 17 is Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 2. 16, Super Mario World 2, Yoshi's Island. Is that Super Mario World 3, actually? Is that wrong? Oh, no, that is no, right, isn't it? Sorry, Super I'm getting Mario, the... Yeah. Getting uh, the um, GBA version mixed up. 15 is Gran Turismo 3. 14, Metal Gear Solid. 13, Street Fighter 2 Turbo Hyper Fighting. 12 is uh, Final Fantasy V. 11 is Super Mario Bros. 3. 10 is Super Mario World. 9 is FF3. I'm guessing that is Final Fantasy VI. Correct. Um, but yeah. Uh, 8 is um, uh, Ocarina of Time. 7 is Majora's Mask. 6 is Soul Calibur. 5 is Super Mario 64, 4 is Castlevania Symphony of the Night, 3 is Zelda A Link to the Past, 2 is Tetris, and 1 is Super Metroid. So that is an interesting snapshot of the time, and definitely, like you say, kind of, you know, there is obviously a, a console leaning here. Mm-hmm. But um, I could see why that would sort of seem appealing to you, Wes, as someone who was kind of like had a very, was a, had a burgeoning knowledge of this stuff. So I suppose I'm kind of curious to know how much EGM drove the conversations in games in the US, uh, you know, up until the mid-noughties when websites took over. Why did you have a particular affinity for that magazine? And uh, I guess, like, why did this list matter to you in the midst of that? Well, you know, looking back on it, uh, it's funny to me how many of the blurbs here, like, I went back and reread through this this feature, are, like, barely saying anything about the game, or they kind of fall back on the sort of, like, it'll keep you interested, like, for, you know, tons of hours, or, like, all the way to the end, or whatever. And I'm like, what the fuck are you like? You're saying nothing like you're just, this is you could insert, you know, this into any game you're talking about. Um, but then there are some other ones that I think really land, even though they're only, you know, they only have 40, 50 words to work with. Having worked on these kind of things now, I know that it was produced in, you know, probably two weeks after like one or two, <laughs> you know, argument meetings. Uh, and then they just hammered this shit out and got it in the mag. I, I had none of that insight at the time. And I think it struck the right balance for me as sort of someone having this like awakening to people talking about games, there being games, magazines, there being this sort of history of video games for me to tap into. It hit a really good balance of stuff I had heard of that I knew to be very acclaimed or prestigious, you know, the Super Metroids of this list, the Tetrises of the list, the Zeldas, and then to be a lot of games that were really interesting and mysterious that I had never heard of or, you know, had some very dim awareness of, and to see them, like, codified in this way that felt so official, like, was, I don't know, it really, like, cemented them as significant games. Um, so at least for, from my perspective, EGM did drive the conversation. I don't know how widespread that was to, you know, everyone who was a game enthusiast in the in the 90s and, and early 2000s, but I feel like it had more cachet than some of the other game mags, like a, like a Game Pro um, or a Nintendo Power was kind of its own thing that we'll we'll talk about. But yeah, I don't know. Maybe it just felt a little bit, a little more cutting edge. Maybe a little bit more grown up. I mean, even just the name Electronic Gaming Monthly, even though it was like an old weird '80s name, I feel like that sort of has a little more prestige to it than than Game Pro. Mm. I don't know. I think as well there is something uh, you know having experienced this myself. If you discover nintendo more around like the n64 era then when you look back on the uh 
SNES as you call it in the US, whereas mm-hmm. um, not the SNES. Um, <laughs> you, uh, you, it seems exotic, uh, exotic and exciting, and so different because there is such a like a, a vast chasm between the N sixty four catalog and the SNES catalog. They are just so so different. So obviously, like the identity of Nintendo first party games kind of remains the same, and it's about translating them to three D, but. Obviously, third-party support on the um, the N sixty four was just so limited. So when you look back on, you know, all of these, uh, you know, a lot of the games in this list, they're just there's not really an equivalent to them that exists past that point necessarily on a Nintendo platform. Mm. So I can see why that might seem exciting as someone who is more focused on Nintendo. You know, yeah, and, and I was, um, you know, I only experienced the Super Nintendo through like friends who owned one and and pretty limited amounts. Um, and it's funny, like I was so kind of clueless as to the console game space for for a long time, even after I got that hand me down uh, Genesis that I remember kids in like the lunchroom talking about different games, different consoles. And there was definitely a time where I thought the Super Nintendo, the SNES and the SNES <laughs> were like different things. Like I didn't understand that that was just people saying the name of the console in different ways. Right. <laughs> so yeah. it really wasn't until like I read this issue of EGM and started subscribing to the magazine and to Nintendo Power that I started kind of filling in a lot of this a lot of this history. Um, but like one of the the funniest things for me looking back at this list is how much a few of these little blurbs like stuck in my mind as almost definitive bits of information about these games number 43 on the list is final fantasy tactics and the blurb says says it has one of the most convoluted poorly written slash translated storylines in the history of video games and (laughs) that like when i was rereading this the other night i was like holy shit that is where my understanding of the ps1 release of final fantasy tactics came from like it was not a review it was the first sentence of this little blurb of this list because i read it so many times i remember when they were re-releasing that game for the psp and they did a retranslation and stuff i remember thinking like oh well yeah that makes sense because the original one was like so convoluted no one could understand it like i hadn't played the game (laughs) at that point i just knew that to be true about it yeah this stuff really does get passed down and you know it becomes received wisdom and everyone sort of repeats the same thing and then no one quite knows where the information came from that totally happens in the uh uk too and matthew you talked about that as well before like n64 magazine before right where just certain oh. opinions stick around in your head even yeah, though yeah i mean yeah. we maybe got two new n64 games a year and they were reviewing all these other ones and you just take their review and pass it off as your own opinion all the time and mm. um a bit I, I guess like probably a closer thing to this top 100 list although the mags did do top 100 games once in a while but they always had the directory of like the best 100 n64 games i think n64 actually had a score for every single n64 game kind were there of 100 n64 games to put on a list <laughs> well that's that's, <laughs> that's that's yeah i think that's where it, it changes yeah but like their little blurbs and scores from that section you know i'd be parroting those for years there's loads of n64 games i haven't played but that I know from those mm. descriptions. And even when I was working on Endgamer, which was the one of the successor magazines to N64, I was still kind of just repeating these things, thinking, this is crazy. I wonder how much stuff they were just repeating from the SNES mag <laughs> before them, Superplay, and it just keeps going on and on. Another bit of this that, that proved to be like a really definitive text for me is after immediately following the list of the 100 best games is... 
uh, EGM's Crapstravaganza, the 20 worst games ever, written by uh, the incredible Sean Baby uh, of Legend. And oh, yeah. this this list absolutely cemented for me, like, these are the worst video games that have ever or will ever been made, <laughs> which included the likes of Bible Adventures, Bubsy 3D, uh, Night Trap, uh, Custer's Revenge, Superman 64, <laughs> like some... Oh. No one has played Superman 64, but we all hate it. I have rented Superman 64. Oh, wow. (laughs) Did I rent it or did I just come across it at somebody's house? I have played that game and it is absolutely vile. Uh, Thing is, though, like everyone knows that as a game about flying Superman through rings and that it's one of the worst games of all time. And those are the two bits of information that people pass on and on and on about that game. You know, is that does that what your experience was with that game was? Uh, yes, you fly through rings, uh, and it's like the fog is so, it's like Turok level fog, you know, like you can barely see anything. There's just rings. And then I think there's like robots that shoot you with lasers and you, you die really fast. Like it's just an absolute piece of garbage. In in one of our big Nintendo mags, NGC, which was like the unofficial Nintendo mag in the UK, they took a line from that game. There's a line of dialogue where Lex Luthor challenges Superman to solve, he says, solve my maze. <laughs> and... There was a uh, there was a regular sort of box out sort of side column in in NGC called Solve My Maze, and it had a picture of Gene Hatman's Lex Luthor, and it was just like a, a nonsense puzzle every month, and that ran for like years and years and years. So like Solve My Maze is like burnt into my mind. I think we had like forum users on on like N Gamers forum called Solve My Maze off the back of that, and like again never touched it uh similarly for me uh after what was it one of the turok sequels or or like reboots a few years later egm there was a the villain of the game was named tobias bruckner i have never played this this video game i think it was uh, like very bad um or maybe it was it was okay i don't know but uh egm like hated this game and they for years after that did the uh, like I think it was called the Tobias Bruckner Memorial Awards or something, which was their like <laughs> Razzies for the year. <laughs> they would celebrate the worst games or the worst characters or something. I don't, I don't remember exactly. I just remember I know the name Tobias Bruckner and will never forget it, even though I've never <laughs> played this Turok game. That's good. I'm going to use that name when I inevitably go into, uh, you know, like witness protection at some point. Um, yeah. If so you live in Texas, good. like perfect, perfect. No one's going to think twice. <laughs> it's funny how these things stick with you, though, actually. We're just talking about EGM reminded me of how there was a little, there was like a paragraph. I think it was in like a, a sexy moments in games feature or something. There's a paragraph about a cutscene in uh, Luna 2 Eternal Blue that was about like, um, a hot tub scene um, and like how one character takes like her clothes off and there's like a, a boy in there being very embarrassed and I just assumed for decades after that that Luna 2 was like a pornographic RPG and then it was quite weird to come back to that series and realize it was, it was pretty celebrated you know it wasn't like a one of the RPG heavyweights but people really love that series and then to discover that it's really not the profile of those games but that was my only frame of reference for the Luna series for two decades was just oh yeah it's just like porn porny anime game and it's just not that so uh yeah this stuff really can stick with you whereas i was curious to ask about nintendo power because it seems it's quite from the uk perspective it's quite an odd prospect or an interesting prospect where it's this you know this kind of like a pamphlet i guess for from nintendo for nintendo players that has this 
you know, there's a lot of love for it, you know, from people who grew up reading it um, that existed. I think it started around the NES era and then obviously kind of continued from there mm-hmm. and it was eventually closed uh, around a decade ago. So I'm curious from your perspective as someone who obviously enjoys reading sort of great games journalism and that sort of thing, like what what the what the significance was of this magazine to you and in the kind of continuum of games media? What what was the appeal of Nintendo Power and, and was it good, I guess? <laughs> <laughs> good good question for sure, whether it was good. I think Matthew and I can probably both relate to being like Nintendo pilled at, at this point in the late nineties. I don't know when that, mm. when that like set in for you, Matthew, I'm sure it was a bit later for me, um, but there's no power is like the place you could go to just gobble up, you know, every bit of Nintendo information that was, you, you could possibly get uh, at a time when, when I started reading it, you know, around 2001, 2002, was Nintendo was kind of entering a dark period, or I, I guess they'd kind of been in a dark period during the, the N64 days, uh, which I wasn't really cognizant of as an N64 player, because, like, I don't know, I had Zelda, I had GoldenEye, like, those games were so incredible that I, w- I was not reading magazines talking about how much better shit was over on the PlayStation. Like, I just wasn't aware of that. So I became more aware of it during the GameCube era where obviously it was the third place console. There was not nearly as much third party support on the GameCube as there was on the PS2 and the Xbox. And, you know, the the great Nintendo games certainly got coverage in uh, Electronic Gaming Monthly in every game mag and website. Um, but I feel like they're probably on balance was a lot more PS2 and Xbox coverage because frankly there was more going on on those systems in the the multi-format mags so Nintendo Power was the place where you could go and sort of be reassured that like yes there's amazing things happening on Nintendo all of the time look at all these cool games Mm, yeah that's interesting so yeah I, I can see why that would be appealing especially when uh especially in the 90s when it was like there was no direct outlet for this information and there was no internet. It seemed like Nintendo Power probably had more of a place then than it, you know, it, it would ever have after that, I suppose. Yeah, I think I came in probably past Nintendo Power's peak in, in relevance. You know, I think early, early on, Nintendo was very savvy to sort of control its own, you know, its own media outlet, basically. And at the time when there was no internet, like they could be the definitive source of information for Nintendo games and really just use it to hype up the fans, right? I think it was very, very popular and effective in the 90s. And by the time I was reading it, it was not probably fulfilling that purpose anymore, um, but it was probably still selling pretty well early, early 2000s magazine scene. It was still a great tome for fans because you would you would get a cool fold-out poster with every single issue you know I had so many of these skinny vertical Nintendo Power posters um, on on my wall uh, at the time um, when I was 15 or so and you know you would just get to occasionally read about some really cool game that was supposedly going to get localized and and brought to the U.S. Um, The one issue of the mag I kept is the one that has uh, a feature on this game called Magical Vacation, which was made by uh, Brownie Brown, kind of a small RPG studio that did Sword of Mana, and then they went on to do um, Mother 3 in collaboration with Itoi and and Nintendo, so they really stepped it up there. But uh, Mm. there was this RPG section in Nintendo Power called The Epic Center, and they had this big feature on Magical (laughs) Vacation, which was this game that I thought looked so cool, had really great 
GBA pixel art, and I was really psyched for it and waited several years before it kind of dawned on me that it was never actually going to come out in the U.S., um, but happy ending. It got a fan translation about two years ago or so, so you can actually play it now. <laughs> nice. I, th- I think a major difference between Europe and the U.S. in the 90s is the JRPG didn't really happen here at all until Final Fantasy VII launched, so mm-hmm. oh, that aside from like import reviews in, in some U.K. magazines. But from the outside looking in, the U.S. always seemed to be a big JRPG territory, and it sounds like, from what you're saying there, Nintendo did its part to really push that and really build that as, you know, part of its brand in in that um, 90s time period was that the case was the jrpg as big as it seemed from the outside or did it did it just seem that way because earthbound or final, uh, dragon quest uh, 7 or final fantasy 6 launched in the u.s when they didn't come here it's it's a good question i didn't really become aware of those games until the early 2000s i, I didn't you know didn't play them growing up First JRPG I played through was Breath of Fire 2 for the Game Boy Advance. So that was like a a port of the game. Uh, And from there, a friend of mine uh, did me the incredible favor in like the summer of probably 2001 uh, of loaning me his PlayStation 1, the like the the PS1, the little really tiny mini one. Do you you guys, did that come out in the UK? The one that's about the size? I sure did. Uh, the, he, the baby one. Yeah, so I think he must have had a PS2 at this point. So he loaned me his PS1 and like a stack of about six JRPGs. And I played all of them like through in, in a summer, basically. Like one of the all-time summers of my life. I played through Chrono Trigger, <laughs> Final Fantasy VI, Final Fantasy IX. Might have played through eight at the time. Uh, Might have played through Chrono Cross. I honestly can't remember how many of them I played in that Uh, contained period a lot of those games had been out for a year or five at that point and I just wasn't aware of them Um, but I did look up a a list before we were were talking though I don't have it in front of me of a lot of Squaresoft games that did not come out in Europe that were out in the U.S. and like it's a pretty long list so I I'm not Uh. shocked that it feels to you like the U.S. was much more of a JRPG territory because it does seem like they just kind of left out Europe on a lot of those games. Yeah, it's hard to tell why that was exactly. Um, I th- actually, the reason is probably very simple. It's probably because it had to localize it for France, Spain, Germany, and that was too big an undertaking to justify mm. what might have seemed like you know a lot of work for a niche genre at the time. So that must have been it. Yeah, yeah. but like Xenogears, uh, Parasite Eve, Brave Fencer, Musashi, Chrono Cross, like those are some. I mean, not all big hitters, Final Fantasy Tactics, like some of those are some big hitters and some of them are kind of weird niche hitters that were not ever Square's most popular games, but like still were formative games for some people, you know, like Parasite Eve Mm. is such a unique game. Xenogears, like, I mean, that is the predecessor to the, the Xenoblade Chronicles games, right? Like that that stuff made a big impact on some people even if they weren't selling millions and millions of copies yeah absolutely and that stuff is you know i think still those games are still worshipped as almost like mythical objects from some people in europe because they just didn't happen here in the way they happened in the u.s so Mm -hmm. uh yeah i I was reading that big was it the polygon to the big oral history of final fantasy 7 yeah that's matt leone yeah it's quite interesting when they talk about you know from their perspective bringing out final fantasy 7 they're like this has to be the JRPG that really lands because our other JRPGs that we bring over to America 
you know, they do fine, but they haven't done that well. Mm-hmm. I think our perspective from the UK or Europe is like every kid grew up playing Final Fantasy, you know, <laughs> like actually hearing them say, if we'd done Final Fantasy six numbers for Final Fantasy seven, we would have been in big trouble, you know, and you're like, oh, maybe it wasn't. Maybe maybe I have got a very skewed perception of this. It's just grass is always greener, I imagine, from the other side. Yeah, and I mean, Final Fantasy did better than, than a lot of them did, and it even wasn't a, a massive seller, but like the Dragon Quest, the original Dragon Quest, Nintendo Power gave it away as a freebie for a while to like promote the magazine or, or promote the game, I guess, right. either way. So Dragon Quest just like never landed over here. Like it never sold enough to, to break through, you know, um, I guess because it was a little bit older by the time they localized it and i don't know just for whatever reason it didn't kind of have the you know the bombast of final fantasy and those games just like never really penetrated so i think over here it was kind of a similar story and that seven really was the the breakthrough jrpg and i think a lot of those games on the super nintendo would be you know passed around from kids who had the 80 or 90 dollars or whatever the cartridges cost at the time to to actually buy them but they weren't really mm. huge kind of until they had that global breakthrough if, if i may ask about another u.s specific phenomenon was is that reading the egm list and knowing what i know about you know the people who produce retronauts for example there was such a huge affinity for castlevania and metroid on the u.s <laughs> side and I was curious to ask about that. Like, why it doesn't? I guess it's not uniquely American, but it just those games just seem to have landed in a way that you know they they are just part of the the consciousness of U.S. games media in a way they just I don't think they were as much here, but maybe have been in recent years with that the Metroidvania games exploding, you know, across all formats and a wave of new ones. So what's I guess what's that all about? What is the U.S. love affair with Castlevania and Metroid all about? Honestly, I don't know because I came to both of those way later as well. Like, I I didn't play Super Metroid until I think the Wii Virtual Console was the first time I played like all the way through it. I think a a friend of my own friend of mine owned it. But it was one of those things where when I go over to my friend's house to like hang out and play games, he's not going to go, hey, let's play 24 hours of this this video game or whatever that you're gonna have to stumble your way through for the the first time i guess once you know super metroid it's like probably six hours long but but anyway the the point is like i did not really have much experience with those i still don't like old castlevania i find it so the movement so clunky and so uh, just like stolid that the nes game it was too hard for me um really like i don't get on with nes games uh super well for the most part um, some of the the later Castlevanias are are amazing, and um, Dracula X uh, is is pretty awesome. Or uh, Rondo of Blood, the one that was like only released in Japan for a long time, that has like some characters who actually move faster than I don't know. Rick, Richter moves like the mummy, basically, so so freaking slow. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't have a good insight into why those games were so popular, other than they just like they were i don't know the castlevania was huge on the nes and then that carried over I mean, that's probably to the SNES. yeah you know it's just it's just there as a formative game it's big on the nes and that's gonna send ripples through people's playing habits for the next 20 years yeah and it's got to be up there as one of the the bigger third-party games on the nes surely yeah it's always there on like the nes mini and the virtual console so you know it's it's so associated with it yeah super metroid is is a more interesting one where i feel like it's somehow one of those games where even if you're not someone who thinks very critically about games and game design probably because you're you know a teenager when you're first experiencing it 
the quality of it shines through so remarkably that you can you can get a mm. sense for just how artfully put together that game is and i think you don't have to be like a a super technical like speedrunner kind of player to discover some of the kind of hidden elements of that game you know like the way you can um kind of take advantage of the wall jumping and was it shine sparking is that the like the advanced Mm -hmm. technique like i feel like some of that stuff is just accessible enough that you could you could realistically stumble upon it by playing that game a few times rather than having to look up you know a strategy guide and be like never in a bajillion years would i have figured out how to you know, cancel myself through that wall or whatever that like people, do, you know, that speedrunners do, right? So I think it just, the pacing in that game was so amazing. The atmosphere was so amazing. It played so well that I think it just, it just hit for people and got people invested in it in a way that not many games uh, on consoles kind of had that like all of those ingredients kind of add up together. But if if it wasn't as big over in the UK, then honestly, I would be mystified as to, to why it, it landed differently here yeah like you know they, they existed but it just it seems like you know just looking at that list it's just the cultural impact of them just seems more outsized so yes yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting to dig into for sure um so whereas when it comes to the gamecube launching in 2001 i'm guessing then you were quite you know fully cognizant of what the games industry was and what was going on across the different platforms so what did you make of the gamecube as someone who was a relatively recent nintendo convert (laughs) i would say i was not yet fully cognizant though i would be before long you know after owning a gamecube for a little while i was just so hyped for that thing like to a I was absolutely annoying the shit out of my my friends with ex- how excited I was for for the GameCube. I remember saving up like all of my odd jobs and allowance money the summer before it came out. The only thing I bought like that year uh, was Majora's Mask, which I think I bought in like I don't remember when it came out, but I bought it in like June or something of 2021. And that carried me through November when when the GameCube came out over here. And that was really like when I started getting into mags. Um, honestly, like I made some of my lifelong friends by being enthusiastic about this stuff. Uh, up to that point, I didn't really have like my video game friends. Like I had friends that I had grown up with and we played games together, but it wasn't like our obsession. And when the GameCube was coming out and I was so excited for Super Smash Brothers, especially and Rogue Leader that like I kind of bonded with some some friends on the bus and like the next few years of us really all the way up through late high school, like we would play like link cable GBA games on the bus and we would, you know, talk about the new new games coming out, you know, share mags. And we moved on to stuff on the, the Xbox and the PS2 as well. But I was really just like, I don't know, I was so blinded to differences between, you know, versions of the games on the Xbox and the GameCube and the GameCube's disc not being able to hold as much, yeah. like all of that stuff. It was just like, Nintendo games look so cool. Uh, that like that was all that was going through yeah. my brain. I think I was in exactly the same place. That's And that, that's when I, when I, you know, have jokingly dismissed the, the importance of other consoles in the UK. <laughs> I was just so all in on GameCube. And it was like amplified by the fact that we got it everything so much later. Like it would always hit in the US and having to wait like another six months and like reading all the reviews oh. in English and seeing how excited everyone was. 
oh my god, it was just death. That that I associate the kind of those two years with just always waiting for something amazing that someone else had. Just that frustration. I'm followed by absolute elation when you play the things and they were just fucking incredible. <laughs> I, I I remember one one particular thing of looking at screenshots of uh, Mario Sunshine online in the lead up to it coming out. Maybe it was it must have already been out in Japan, but it hadn't come out over here yet. And all of the, what do you call it? The sort of victory screen after you would collect a, a shine at the end of the level. Oh, and Mario yeah. would, you know, hold it up to the camera and it would say shine get on the screen, which I thought was very funny and just, you know, sort of poor English in the Japanese version of the game. <laughs> uh, but when they released it over here, they changed the phrase. Um, I, I don't remember what it says now in the English version. Um, but it's like you got a, sh- a shrine or something like that, uh, and I was so sad that they, that they changed that. I don't know. I was just like so keyed in to looking at every screenshot I could of this game that that was like this is how this is what it says in the game. That's part of its personality. And then when they changed it, I was I was bummed out. So really like un- very uncool levels of investment in the minutia of Nintendo games at that time. Whereas I think one of the more confusing things to me in retrospect, and I understood exactly why this happened at the time, is just how badly the GameCube failed versus previous Nintendo generations. Like the the software releases seemed languid at the time next to PS2, but in retrospect, I think when you take the top twenty of the PS2 and compare it to the top twenty of the GameCube, they really are comparable in terms of quality. That they're completely different types of games in most cases, but the actual like very top tier is great the ps2 just had volume on its side so Mm. why do you think the gamecube failed aside from the very obvious factor of not having a dvd player where the ps2 did have one (laughs) you know there's probably a bunch of different factors here but i think nintendo did what they always do which is make some really incredible video games but i think more than at any other point in its history they were just completely out of step with the culture of the time like I think it's hard to articulate how different the year 2000 was one was from from now especially for for us like having been teenagers at the time I think our perception of it was probably through a very specific lens um but it, like that was still very much like the monoculture then in a way in a way that like that will never exist again um but like everything in 2001 if you think about it like rotates kind of around the culture of like frosted tips uh paris hilton deeply ingrained (laughs) misogyny like the culture was was in a very specific edgy place at this time and i think nintendo was deeply uncool and did not know how to navigate that era or i should say deeply uncool by the standards of that time period and i think they were just so out of step in in that moment it's like I just had that flashing image of the um, like the Getty images from is it a GameCube launch of like Jason Alexander holding a GameCube yeah. or holding a fucking Game Boy Advance, and you're like, no, this is this is what's wrong. The culture was just yeah. so different, right? Like, there's no, yeah. there is no fucking universe in which Animal Crossing: New Horizons comes out in the year 2001 and sells 40 million copies. Like, that just does not happen in the culture of that time yeah it's funny how there's just so much blanket appreciation for nintendo now for the you know sincere appreciation for the games they make and they are not edgy games even now the profile of them is not a million miles away from the games they're making on gamecube but 
the work i guess the the we did to build the the profile of nintendo or get those games in people's hands mm-hmm. and then ingrain a new generation with this appreciation for the iconography and the the games they made means that they can sell the switch now off the back of gamecube games like there are you know increasing numbers of gamecube games returning to switch and just really interesting to see that turnaround but i think like you say it's like you know there was the you know the, the era of the band Carl's Jr. ad with Paris Hilton like <laughs> in a bikini or whatever. That's that is the those were those years. So yeah, the GameCube mm. did seem out of step. That's a really good point. I've genuinely never really thought about it like that, and it's it's so true of just how culturally unlike the things are. Like I, as much as I loved GameCube, it was a private interest. You know, you know, I was at college at the time, and just the idea of like talking about GameCube while like the very particular music played on like MTV in the kind of common room or whatever, it just wouldn't have flown at all. Like the, the gulf between those things as well. Yeah, like it's it's an interesting coming off the back of like the Dreamcast, right? Where I think the Dreamcast actually was on the cutting edge of like having an, an attitude that fit the culture at the time. Like it was a really exciting thing but it was there were too many other obstacles for it to kind of break through you know and maybe it was still a bit too japanese to really pop off in in the kind of big wider culture of the early 2000s but i think it was better poised to do that if sega hadn't had so many roadblocks in its its way to success at that point the gamecube was just even when they tried to fight back on that sort of kitty image they had, right, with Reggie coming in and doing his, you know, I'm here to kick ass and, and take name speech or whatever, like, it was still, like, the cringy corporate version of we're edgy now, you know? Like, they mm. they were trying, like, they recognized that they were out of step, but they couldn't really change that because it's, like, that is not Nintendo, right? They are not, they are not that company, and I think it shows when... You know, you look back on that um, that Twilight Princess reveal from E3 where, like, everybody in the room is just melting down and they're so excited to see, like, the the hardcore Link come out and, like, he's frowning, you know, he looks angry and, like, the graphics and all that shit. But, like, it hasn't aged. That moment, that trailer, like, does not age well. It feels try hard. You know, it feels like them trying to adapt to what was trendy, but it was not what was you know, in their heart. And eventually the culture changed, people's tastes changed, interests splintered off enough that Nintendo can be largely more true to itself, I think, and still find great success Mm. with with its games uh, in in the modern age. They gave a gay boy advance a tribal tattoo. (laughs) I mean, what clearer example is there than that? That is an interesting segue, actually, Wes, is the, the Game Boy Advance is obviously happening at the same time as the GameCube and was significantly more successful. It did only last for around four years, which is a shorter lifespan, the Game Boy, which went on forever, of course, and then the um, the DS and 3DS, which were a little bit closer to the seven-year mark. So uh, I guess like the Game Boy Advance, similar to the GameCube, why does it have this enormous reputation despite that? Because... You see, when you look up a list of like the best games on the platform, a, l- a lot of it is remakes, but it's remakes of stuff that was actually very welcome at the yeah. time, which that was kind of one of the things I think maybe goosed that level of interest is that there was a lot of uh, snares nostalgia from around that time or these games that were not easily accessible before. But what what, it, what is what has powered the GBA's modern reputation, do you think? It's a, it's a great question because... It is in. It is wild to think about it only being out and relevant for like for four years, like you say. I mean, 
that's like in the same period that Squaresoft was releasing, you know, a hundred bangers on the PS1. Like they were doing, you know, Aaron Sorkin on Coke levels of productivity from, from like 97 <laughs> to 2000. Right. And the GBA was kind of it was kind of the same where it it feels like it was around twice as long as it was. Um, maybe that's because the evolution from the Game Boy to the Game Boy Pocket to the Game Boy Color was like was such that thing was around for so long and was such a kind of um, minor evolutionary steps each time. You know, even though the Game Boy Color added color and was more powerful, it was still like pretty close to that original hardware. You know, so I think maybe when the GBA came out it had that kind of ooh like it's the year 2000 like we're advanced now it's edgy you know it's got a new design it's for the first time really since the game boy was was debuted right like the game boy color is kind of just looks like a slimmed down game boy more or less so the gba was you know i think it hit that like sense of newness when it came out and it was able to run maybe this is the first time where we really had that phenomenon of like all oh, the new this this handheld device can run something you were playing on your TV a, a few years ago. I don't mm. I don't know if that's like historically true, but maybe it it feels right. You know, the fact that you could play a Super Nintendo game on the GBA was probably pretty freaking exciting uh, at the time it came out. That's a good point actually. Yeah, I I hadn't really considered that factor because yeah, that would that was definitely the defining element of the handhelds that would follow as well like the the PSP, you know, bringing that kind of like more yeah, yeah PlayStation 1 uh, to even 2 era experience to a handheld. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's a key part of the mix for sure. Um yeah, I, I think it's uh, Matthew. I was always cu- also curious to know from your perspective why why you think there's so much GBA nostalgia because it's not something we talked about loads in the podcast. I know we're threatening to do a GBA draft at some point, yeah. but um, w- w- do you think that's do you think that's what it is? It was just we yeah. have actual Mario Kart in your hands, and that is that's pretty special for the time. Yeah, I think that's part of it. You know, it feels like it's it's a continuation of like a different line. It's a continuation of two D nintendo game making you know whether direct remakes of the series or series that you loved on the nes or the snes you know castlevania on gba is a great example of like if you have that natural affinity for it uh, you know it is still the home of many great jrpgs um whether they were remakes or things like golden sun which were amazing so i mean yeah it's sort of scratching that 2d itch it's weird because the narrative in certainly in games magazines in the uk was once we entered the sort of 3D era, Mag started getting a little bit sniffy about 2D games on more powerful hardware. Totally. That was often like a negative mark in, in the in the in the review of like, you know, why aren't you using this power to make a 3D game? This is preposterous. But maybe having this space where that's that stuff can continue more naturally and not feel like a kind of waste of power, whatever that means, helps. But I don't know if that that really has much of an impact. You know, if that's just a a weird UK games mag hang up. I, I wonder if it had a big impact at the time, but I think at least in retrospect, it absolutely has in that if you think about looking back at games from the PS1 era, PS2 era, and then especially like on the DS, like early 3D stuff does not hold up well, often mm. visually, but especially from a like camera control perspective and you know all, all of that stuff. And I think... The GBA, with hindsight, has the benefit of 
being a really good platform for pixel art. Like it's just high res enough that you can have some really expressive sprites and and all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. And it was uh, a very colorful system to look at screenshots of on your computer, partially because they had to way oversaturate everything because the screen was so fucking dim on that thing. <laughs> so when you look at a screenshot of like, um, uh, what's the Zelda uh, game? Oh, Minish Cap, Cap, right? You look at a screenshot of it and it's like, it's so vibrant and it looks so freaking nice on your computer monitor. And that was because you're not like having to get it under a lamp and like look at the the initial model of the the GBA the SP obviously solved that but so I think when we look back at these games and you you know you can like upscale pixel perfect upscale pixel art and GBA games just look so nice and it was kind of the last era of a handheld or a console really where you were only getting those kind of games you know like yeah you can have really Uh. good 2D on a DS for sure but not everybody was doing that it was you know, maybe half the library or or less probably. And on the GBA, like everything is potentially gorgeous pixel art outside of like X versus Sever or something like that. <laughs> yeah, you know, even X versus Sever had its moments for a, <laughs> yeah, a Doom alike on a GBA. Um, Where's actually, I'm curious, as someone who was, you know, following the, the JRPG genre, the GBA was huge for that as well. You mentioned Breath of Fire there. Um, but like, there's also like Tales of Fantasia on there and some pretty good ports of like Final Fantasy 1 and 2, for example. It was a big, um, big platform for that genre. Was that significant for you in terms of you deepening your understanding of the JRPG? Mm, I didn't play too many on there. I did play the Lunar remake. I think it was called Lunar Legend or Legends or something like that. I, I didn't play a whole lot. Yeah, I played Breath of Fire. Um, Tales of Fantasia I actually played on a Super Nintendo emulator years before that because there was a fan. It was like the, maybe the first fan translation of a game I ever played that one of my friends found. Hmm. I don't think I even really understood what it was other than like this is a game that was never released here, but now you can play it in, in English. Uh, and I remember it had like a really raunchy fan translation. Um, like there's a line in the game where one of the characters says, I bet she fucks like a tiger because it was this like really aggressive member of your your party Whoa. that, yeah, that that would <laughs> that did not make it into the GBA version of, of that game for sure. <laughs> it's more about like Mad Men dialogue, that kind of thing. That's uh, a little bit out there. Um, did, wow, okay. did you ever do anything with gba gamecube link up did you ever play any of those games yes uh i loved um well i wouldn't say i loved crystal chronicles i loved the idea of it i loved um the four swords game that was really good uh only played it with one friend um crystal chronicles was really cool but it was such a barrier to entry to get those get like a friend over who has a gba and spent the 20 bucks or whatever on the link cable and get it all hooked up and everything that we didn't do it much that was definitely one of nintendo's like less thought through uh (laughs) concepts for a for a cool tie-in but um it was it, it the games that they designed around it were quite fun it was just so difficult to really experience them but but mm. I, I wish to this day that they would do something with Four Swords Adventures because it was it was a great game and like you could easily replicate yeah. that online now. They, they put out that weird little free version on DSi. Do you remember that? Yeah, the, that was the one that was, like was part thing. of the Link to the Past cartridge, I think. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, that was good too. Yeah. But that's the last time they like yeah. acknowledged it existed, right? That feels like something they'll salvage at some point, you know? Yeah, they should just shove it on, like, Nintendo Switch Online subscription. They really should. Yeah. 
Yeah, so Wes, as someone who covers the emulation scene, what are some hidden gems on the GBA and GameCube in your opinion? Mm, so I, I made some made a, a short list here um, in the in the notes doc, which I don't I don't think these will probably be a surprise to anybody who has has played GBA, or at least most of them won't be. But um, I mean, if if you haven't played Mother Three, that's not a hidden gem, but it's a game you should absolutely experience, like regardless of whether you played Earthbound, even if you don't like. Japanese RPGs I think it's worth playing it it is a truly incredibly written game Uh, it it holds up so so well it's so expressive despite being you know limited to to quite simple sprite art on on the GBA is it very nihilistic that game where it's in its outlook I remember when I I think I maybe there was a Retronauts episode about or I read an article but it sounded like quite intense the themes of the game and maybe that was part of the reason it never came here Intense, definitely. You need to play Mother 3. Um, it's really worth experiencing. I would not say it's nihilistic. It's one of those kind of stories that is deeply sad and about cynicism and death and big things, but also like very hopeful and, and sweet in, in some ways. So mm. I, I think it's, I don't know, it, it is a story that expands far beyond you know a a game boy advance cartridge like it's the kind of thing that leaves you you know with with feelings and things to to ruminate on much greater than you would expect from i mean even from you know like a final fantasy kind of story like it is it is much more reserved than than that and it has plenty of silliness in it but it is like it is certainly more of a, a thinker's game you know like if you've if you read anything about itoy the the creator of the mother series and sort of what he does outside of video games his sort of design and philosophy stuff like it it makes sense the kind of game that that mother 3 is coming from someone like like him it is not really concerned with telling a you know, an, an epic adventure story the way so many RPGs mm. are. Right, right. Gotcha. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, so you put Dirt next to that on your list. Um, <laughs> uh, what else would you recommend? Uh, Astro Boy Omega Factor from Treasure. It is one of the great action games ever made. Um, you don't have to know anything about Astro Boy to love this game. I did not know anything about Astro Boy going in. Um, I'm, I'm a, an anime head, but I have not like really ever read any Astro Boy manga or watched any of the cartoon. Um, but it's just, you know, it's it's treasure. The same people who made Ikaruga, Gunstar Heroes, you know, so many legendary games. And like this game is right up there with them. It just happens to be about Astro Boy. <laughs> oh, kind of a weird one maybe is uh, Kingdom Hearts Chain of Memories. I do not have great respect for the Kingdom Hearts story. Uh, I have <laughs> I have played the first two Kingdom Hearts games. Um, you would not find them on uh, a list of games that I would recommend to many people. But, ch- <laughs> but Chain of Memories is like a, a cool card battle RPG. From like now we have like 10 million of those on Steam, right? But at the time it was pretty novel. There were not many games like that, and it's a very like simplified retelling of the first Kingdom Hearts uh, PS2 game, but on the GBA and you're pretty much just going around like nice pixel art environments and then doing like a cool card battle system there's not it's like pretty light touch in terms of the story and everything so you really could play this game and not pay any attention to the kingdom heartsness of it it doesn't have a lot of that that bullshit that would come to define these games and just be like yeah this is a cool battle system and like the art's really nice so that's one yeah. I would recommend. You've picked two games there, where it's actually that I, I hoovered up when I bought my DS and 
made the most out of the GBA slot. Mm. So I bought Astro Boy for like nine ninety nine. It was just oh. like a fire sale. I just sold sold for no money in Europe because it just you know Astro Boy has no real cultural footprint here. So yeah, I agree with you. That game is amazing. Like um, Matthew knows, it's going to be one of my draft picks when we finally do that GBA draft. I'm sure. But well, you hope it will be <laughs> one of your draft picks. <laughs> Very true. But I think you know the magic of that game is there is a lot of like Astro Boy lore in there, but. Um, it kind of just it's in the form of like very brief character encounters and the overall story it tells is very good because you basically lose the first playthrough it's like the apocalypse mm. the end of the first playthrough then you kind of reset and restart right. until you keep going until you find the optimal ending so i really love that and on the front of um, the kingdom hearts chain of memories front i kind of like i i was sort of like i had mixed feelings on it as someone who you know, maybe like the PS2 game slightly more than you did, even though I think it's a hilarious flex to expect people to play the GBA <laughs> game to understand the second um, PS2 game uh, of your series. Um, but, you know, obviously that's very, that's part of the course of Kingdom Hearts. But I do, um, I do think as well, if you like the world ends with you, there's like connective tissue between this and that, right, in terms of a combat system that is not exactly direct action, but mm-hmm. involves you know like item usage like it's like is it like badges that kind of thing in the world ends with yeah, you but yeah, yeah. there's yeah, a little right. a little commonality is that do you think that's am i on the right money there Wes? it's been such a long time since i played it that i don't remember the details of it outside of the the cards um it just being that was novel to me at the time but i think you're absolutely correct in the lineage of those games and like the people who probably worked on them that this is definitely a predecessor to the world ends with you and i think you can see that even in just the the art style of you know mm. even beyond just like it's a nomura game i think the 2d representation of kingdom hearts here you can definitely see some carryover to the the 2d art in the world ends with you mm. which is a great game too cool um so what else do you have on your list really quickly mention the klonoa games on gba are pretty good if you ever liked the klonoa platformers on ps1 ps2 <sighs> Um, and then this is probably the the deepest cut. It's a weird series. Uh, Kuru Kuru Kuririn, I think, is how you pronounce it. And it, it's oh, a yeah. game where you control a. Are you a? You're not really a propeller. You're a pla- You're like the pong paddle, but you're just spinning either to the left or the right, and you're like navigating yeah. through a maze. I thought it was like a helicopter from above, almost. Mm, I, that's that's a good way of looking at it. Uh, yeah, it's just like a weird kind of. I guess you'd call it a puzzle puzzle game or a puzzle platformer sort of it's not really a platformer in the way we traditional think of traditionally think about them but yeah it's just a game where you like navigate mazes and it's really about just the motion of this thing you don't really control you know you kind of like you're very limited in your control right and so it just becomes about doing i guess (laughs) geometry in your head in, in real time or trigonometry i don't know it's yeah. It's, a, it's a cute little game that you would I think you would look at it and be like why would I play this this looks really dumb and then <laughs> like cut to five hours later and you're you know 17 levels deep and you're like freaking out over the like 17 degree angle that you managed to to like <laughs> get your paddle in just as you're going around a curve I don't know it's a it's a weirdly fun little game yeah that's on, included on uh the gba selection on switch online subscription oh cool so yeah people can check that out i think it had a critically it was very well reviewed here wasn't it matthew so i think people some people did discover it 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 was definitely big in ngc magazine 
like yeah. people were into it and it, it it doesn't look like anything else it's one of those games where you see a screen of it and you're like oh yeah that's kuru 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 <laughs> yeah. and it's like it can only be that thing this like pastel <laughs> this big weird blue line yep. okay that's awesome Wes. so those are your gba picks but you've got a few game games too right oh yeah I, i'm curious how many of these uh M- matthew has played dk jungle beat maybe the best platforming oh. game ever made it's up there truly incredible yeah. what the galaxy team did before galaxy basically and it's like every bit as good as that should be I, I remember not really knowing what to expect out of this game um playing i played the wii version actually which isn't even as cool because you don't play it with the bongos oh wow. uh, you just play it like by you know doing the basically ravi drums but but as donkey Kong. <laughs> yes <laughs> <laughs> and uh but it's it's a platformer where i believe you can finish probably every level in the game without touching the ground if you play it perfectly and you know the when you first start playing it you're like oh i got a a combo of like i don't know 13 points or whatever where i managed to bounce on a thing like zip line on some bananas you know bounce to the next one you're like hitting your drums on beat to stay in the air and then once you've been playing it for a few hours you're like getting through half of a level by doing all of these moves without ever touching the ground and breaking your combo string uh, and it just it's a game that like feels so incredible and empowering once you get down the the rhythm of it and and what DK can do that like the Donkey Kong Country um, Returns games I think get a lot of love but this is to me like this is the far and away the best Donkey Kong platformer ever oh for sure for sure okay awesome uh, yeah Matthew's uh, extolled the virtues of that before even if the the you know the way to experience it is still trapped on GameCube to a large degree yeah I mean the um, bongos are clearly the the best way to play it but uh here, here's a deeper cut Bomberman Generation oh nice um yeah weird version of Bomberman that has the traditional Bomberman multiplayer mode but then also has a full campaign with like different elemental bombs and almost like a light kind of Pokemon-esque thing where you get these like companions that can do elemental stuff for you and you're navigating like 3d spaces like kind of an adventure game i don't know i i haven't played it granted since like the year 2003 or 4 so it might not hold up really well but i remember thinking it was pretty cool at the time yeah there's i think there's like a mixed history of like single player bomb man experiences so yeah i think i think we might have had this game in our office um and people on games tm used to play the multiplayer i believe is what happened with that one um yeah that's cool a cool pick uh, so you got a couple more ways, yeah. is that right? Um, uh, Beten Kaitos Origins, which is coming out on the Switch within a few months, I think. That's a great JRPG, one of the last GameCube games. Maybe the last JRPG ever made with uh, pre-rendered backgrounds. Um, it's an absolutely gorgeous, gorgeous looking game. What do you think of Monolith Soft's journey as a developer from making these quite niche sort of like propositions on GameCube and Wii to becoming the sort of like, you know, the RP the RPG sort of like masters are seen as now. What do you kind of make of make of that as someone who who did play this game? I think it's cool to see. I never played the the Xenosaga games, though I had one of my friends um who was was big into the first one. Those never struck me as as great, honestly. They seemed like too cutscene heavy at a time when they weren't doing actually very good cutscenes and too wordy um, and I think uh, the first Batankaitos was like okay, but the second one is is really good and has like a a strangely good uh, English dub for the time, English voice acting. So I think they were kind of finding their sweet spot around around the time that they made that game. 
and they think they really stepped it up with uh, the first Xenoblade Chronicles game, and I think they get the they get the love that they deserve. Though I personally do not really like the um, the aesthetic of Xenoblade Chronicles two or three as much as I like um, the look of like Potenkaitos or uh, the first Xenoblade Chronicles. Honestly, they got a little too like plasticky anime for me. Though it seems like three is is a lot better than two in that regard. I think three kind of clawed it back to sort of a a, a better middle ground. Yeah. Um, but it's cool that they're they're kind of are they the only studio doing these like big JRPGs that still give you quite a bit of freedom in how you explore the world and like they they feel like they're not on rails in the way that so many RPGs are at this point. They still are kind of like fundamentally go to you know point a to point b and trigger the next sort of 20 minute cutscene. but once they open up they definitely have have more freedom to them i don't really know what other people are doing like i I don't really play like the tales games for example Mm -hmm. or or the trails games or whatever the fuck that series is called (laughs) and like wasn't a recent star ocean meant to be a bit more like this i i don't Um, know much about the new star ocean other than i was surprised that it it came out and it didn't seem like it it did super well but uh good good for them for still being good good job hanging around triace like you're still you're still there i i I wouldn't want to speak to the character of the JRPG scene where I basically only play Xenoblade <laughs> because they're all like 500 hours long, so that's all you can play Xenoblade. That's fair I enough. think I would like to see them do something different at this point. Like, they've made enough Xenoblade games for a while. I would love to see them get to stretch their wings and, and try a different setting, mm. you know, because I think um, Baten Kaitos is like a really different vibe than, than Xenoblade, and it'd be great to see them do something something different again because i think they are a very good studio and they could probably kind of nail whatever they go after they just need to need to get the opportunity to to do so but it's Mm. it's tough to launch a new a new series and put all that money into it for sure so wes your final game here really proves your gamecube bona fides (laughs) i feel because this is a true oddity so why don't you tell us about this uh matthew have you ever played cubivore I haven't played it, but I've I've um, covered it from afar. Uh, this is a weird one where, like, going back to my story of just finding Next Generation magazine at the local grocery store and that being sort of my gateway into reading about video games, this is a game that I just found at my local, uh, like, movie rental shop that had, like, a small selection of video games. I have no idea why first of all this game was localized uh to the united states (laughs) second of all why it was one of the probably 20 gamecube games that my local rental shop had because it is it is so weird uh it is like if keita takahashi the creator of uh, katamari damacy watched like a hundred hours of nature documentaries and then decided to make like pokemon like that is this is the game that would result from that you play as a little cuboid creature you start as like a a baby and then you kind of grow into an odd shaped animal everything in the world is made of big blocky 
cubes and rectangles and stuff and you gradually like eat other animals and and take on their body parts and so then you become this weird ungainly creature with just like strange rectangles and cubes sticking off of your body and then you get in fights with progressively bigger monsters that can then like tear pieces of your your cube body off of you it's a really weird game uh it does not try to to not be weird like in the localization for this they did not attempt to you know to sanitize it for a a general audience they were just like this is the weird ass game we've got and we're gonna we're gonna lean into it and uh i don't know i rented this and it never left my mind even though it is uh not a great game i think by any measure but it's like one of the most (laughs) interesting games i've ever played i love that it was called animal leader i believe it's like the translator japanese title um (laughs) cubivore is as deep early noughties energy and also that nintendo didn't chose not to bring that to the u.s but atlas stepped in and and did bring it to the u.s that's uh quite an interesting touch there we've got you freaks (laughs) (laughs) yeah we know what you want yeah um that's awesome that you picked this up very like pre persona being a huge deal atlas right like atlas in the early 2000s like what the heck are we doing i don't know let's localize cubivore yeah yeah that's awesome also like just to sort of underline its slightly cursed nature originally started development for the 64 dd peripheral like that's (laughs) what a perfect background for that kind of game um amazing a great what a great way to round off all right so well yeah that's thanks so much for joining us Wes and talking us um talking us through your your passion for Nintendo and your career it's been awesome having you so uh yeah thanks for coming along where can um, people get you on social media uh well by the time this podcast comes out I don't know if Twitter is going to exist or if it'll have just like (laughs) sunk into the the sea um but you can find me if you if you google uh Wes Fenlon I'll, I'll come up um readonlymemo.com is my emulation newsletter of course you can find me on on PC Gamer um, yeah, it was a it was a pleasure to be here. At the risk of throwing out a cursed idea, Sam, if you ever want to do an Excel episode about Babylon and talk about that movie for three to six hours, uh, I would <laughs> I would be delighted because I think you're the only other person I know who has seen it and I believe liked it as much as I did. Question oh, mark. Yeah, I did really enjoy it. Like Matthew, you were a bit cooler on it than than I was, right? Yeah. Yeah. But that's okay. I can. I, I wouldn't mind observing from the sidelines. I think as this would have just a fascinating, like sort of disaster of a movie that almost pulls it out. I don't know. I kind of loved it. There's no reason that it should have existed in the like more conservative <laughs> post-pandemic uh, like Hollywood landscape. It's like such a an anomaly, um, a beautiful cursed anomaly. Um, yeah, it's. Uh, I, I was. I was a big fan of it, but. Um, Yes, that's something something for us to ponder whether Matthew can sort of sigh <laughs> through three hours of that podcast about that one thing. I'll just I'll sit there looking like Toby Maguire in that <laughs> film. That's my role in it. Yeah, thank you yeah. so much for having me on. Yeah, of course, Wes. Thank you so much. And uh, Matthew, where can people get you on social media? I'm at Mr. Basil underscore Pesto. Awesome. I'm Samuel W. Roberts. If you'd like to support the podcast, we're patreon.com slash backpagepod. XL episode this month. 20 games we think deserve a remake, XXL, Mission Impossible movies ranked. I've still got two and uh, and six to watch from that series, so oh. excited to discuss those. Yeah, and uh, I can't remember what else I say at the end of the podcast. Goodbye. Ha- farewell. <laughs> yes. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>